Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. As always, I am joined by the co-host, the Predator, Christopher Gillespie. I'm here. All right. And I am your other host, Pastor Don Riley, El Sabaje, as I'm called by my Mexican family. Oh, that's nice. He's the savage. <laughs> oh, maybe not so nice. Yeah, you know. But uh, yeah, welcome everybody. We are coming to you again as I eat string cheese and drink spring water mm. <laughs> because we're professionals here at the I'm podcast. I'm having a Lara coming... bar myself. A Lara bar, nice. Mm-hmm. A Lara Croft bar. Mm. No, that's. I'll give. I'll give Alicia. I'll give Alicia a chance. I will. Yeah, oh, absolutely. No, they, it, it looks like they completely left that straight out of the video game, mm-hmm. rather than and, the kind uh, of like hyper Hollywoodized. <clears throat> excuse me, predecessor. Yeah, if it, the the video game plays pretty much like a movie, or maybe that's just because so many movies now are written by people that grew up playing video games. Mm, sure. But the video game as a narrative is actually really good. I enjoyed it <laughs> immensely. Okay. And uh, it looks like I said, it looks like the 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 movie pretty much just follows beat for beat. Actually, the video game. Kind of like uh, so. Hmm, <clears throat> I don't know if there's another good example that came to mind. <laughs> Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Oh yeah, they nailed it. Absolutely. <laughs> totally got it right. All right. Yeah. Let's just have a, a legally blind dude play Raiden. From Belgium. That makes total sense. <laughs> oh man. And uh but as, as always, we are coming coming to you from the behavioral sciences unit in the lower level of Higher Things headquarters in Lima, Peru this week. Oh. I like the the llamas, or is it the No, they're not llamas. What alpacas? are they? The alpacas, yeah. Yeah. They make uh, nice sweaters. Not a fan. No? Not oh. a fan. No. They just look like giant deformed poodles. <laughs> yeah. But but they they are kind of cool when you when you're visiting the um the you know the, what's the one site up in the hills with all the all the ruins, you know, oh, the sure. temples and whatnot. Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or when you go to a higher things conference and we have a petting zoo and they spit at you. Oh, those are llamas, not alpacas, right? Those are the llamas, ill-tempered beasts. Come to a higher things uh, conference, get spit upon. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Exchange fluids with wildlife. Uh, This week, we're going deep again into the archives. I've been in that mood the last couple of weeks. I don't know if it's Lent or what, but I've been digging deep into my library. And today, we're going to look at Luther, an experiment in biography by H.G. Hale. Oh, don't even know this one. And you know what's a good biography? Because the quote yeah. at the beginning of the book is from Einstein. <laughs> of all things. But this was published by... Da, 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 da. Let's see here. Turn the page. Doubleday and Company Incorporated, Garden City, New York. So you know it's old. And it was copyright 1978. Oh, wow. Copyright 1980, I'm sorry. 78, where the article is 1980 is the book. But yeah, so even before you get to the table of contents, Albert Einstein, 1950, this is what introduces you to this book. This religious attitude, so to speak, toward truth is not without its influence on the total personality of scientific man. Aside from what presents itself to his experience and the rules of thinking itself, the researcher recognizes as a matter of principle, no authority whose decisions or utterances can lay claim to truth in quotation marks. This gives rise to the paradox that a man who dedicates his best powers to things outside himself becomes, from the social point of view, an extreme individualist, who, in principle at least, relies on nothing but his own judgment. 
One can even argue the position that intellectual individualism and scientific aspiration appeared at the same moment in history and have remained inseparable. Albert Einstein, 1950. Interesting. Yeah, right. And the interesting, well, the other interesting thing, or, or however you want to phrase it, about Hale is that there were a generation of historians who approached historiography and the historical task from the perspective of a journalist. Ah, okay. They looked at history journalistically. And I think we've mentioned it on this podcast before, but this is why you have non-Lutherans, non-Germanic, non-Scandinavians writing really good biographies of Luther and doing really, really solid examinations of his theology mm. because they're looking at it forensically, for ah, lack of a better it. word. They're looking at it from the perspective of a journalist doing research. Right. And as much as is possible, they're attempting to leave their presuppositions and prejudices at the door. Got it. Whereas Hence the I title, An Experiment you, in bio Biography. Exactly, An Experiment in Biography. Whereas when you're inside uh, baseball, so to speak, it's <laughs> much more difficult, I think, to recognize your presuppositions and prejudices, especially in relation to your spiritual heroes. Sure. I mean, we have an agenda to try to build up Luther as much as possible since he is the namesake. Right. And uh, you, so you have guys like Hale, um, Bohmer, um, who else came out of that generation? Even Hans Hillebrand, uh, Pauk, that they attempted to look at Luther more critically, even though those guys were Lutherans, Hillebrand and Pauk, they were Lutheran. They yeah. attempted to uh, take this approach to historiography and examine the primary documents and suss out for themselves what was happening or what occurred with Luther and Wittenberg in society. So that, as Hillebrunt has said in another collection of works that we'll read eventually, the, the difficulty is that so much of Luther's scholarship in the 20th century relied on later Luther's reflections on his own life and then read Luther through Luther's own filter. And rather than take a step back and simply examine the primary materials – we allowed Luther to tell us how to read him hmm. or read the Reformation or read the German culture hmm. in, in, the 15th, in the 1500s. And it then colored scholarship for generations. Yeah. Because can Luther be angry and feisty and nasty? Yes. Can <laughs> Luther be funny and sardonic and satirical and humorous? Oh, extremely so. Mm -hmm. And yet... Very rarely, if ever, at least in my studies of Luther, did I, outside of my own research, reading the primary documents, encounter a Luther that was presented to me as being uh, a fun-loving, humorous, you know, joke-cracking kind of guy. Yeah. It was usually always the serious Luther, the debater, and then later kind of crazy old Luther. Yeah, that's right. And all the nasty things he wrote. Anti-Semite crazy Luther. Right. And... I think as a consequence, what we don't recognize historically is how much the influence of later Germans had on us as Americans and how we interpret and read Luther. That hmm. the, okay. the Orthodox movement read Luther as, an, as a scholastic. The rationalists read him as, well, a rationalist, as someone who put a lot of um, emphasis on the objectification of knowledge and understanding – and then the pietists, of course, they presented a pietistic Luther to us. The romanticists presented a romantic version of Luther to us. And in, in the same way that Luther was uh, attacked through propaganda, through Roman Catholic propaganda, and the seven-headed Luther, referring to uh, the beast in Revelation. Oh, yeah. In the very similar way, Lutherans have created a seven-headed Luther 
by attempting to portray him within the light of their own movement, their own ideologies, their own theology, their own confession. And so by the 20th century, Luther as a man has really disappeared. Mm. And instead what we have is even Goethe used Luther as a kind of totem for the Germanic people and as a hero, a national hero, a German hero. And of course, Hitler did this uh, most recently uh, to, to take Luther and Goethe and others and construct this mythological German race, this Teutonic Aryan race yeah. to support his own ideologies. It's the same thing that we would try to do. Uh, we try to canonize him almost, like give him, oh, I don't know what you want to say, like like in Rome, like he sits on the chair of Peter, except this is the chair of Lutherans. Yeah, right. right. For the most part. And yet always knocking him off his pedestal. <laughs> So that we'll follow Trelch into the ditch of dividing Luther into young, middle, and late. And yeah, then right. say, well, I don't like early Luther. So therefore, anything written before 1521 or 1525, I will discount. That has lesser value than maybe middle-aged Luther from 1525-28 through 1538. Mm, okay. And from the Catechism, the small called articles. And then we'll just dismiss older Luther outright because he can't possibly have anything good to say. Uh, because of a few tracts that he wrote or essays he wrote that were extremely um, unforgivable. Right. <laughs> unforgivable in the extreme. And so instead of judging Luther based on Luther, we judge Luther based on the conclusion to the Reformation or the end result and then read backwards. Ah, right. And as Hillebrandt warns in one of his essays, we have to track the Reformation as it goes from when Luther speaks and begins teaching, actually, through 1517, through 1518 at Heidelberg, out the other side, through uh, Spire and other places, uh, and recognize that there is no such thing as a Reformation. There's no such thing as the Reformation, that what we would call the German Reformation, for example, is numerous strands numerous mm -hmm. movements, and that not everyone who left Heidelberg, for example, in 1518, really accepted Luther's theology. It may mm -hmm. just have been they saw a political opening to attack the church and that they had their hobby horse that they wanted to jump on, and Luther became kind of the, the window, the open window for them to leverage their position against the church. And so you had political movements, you had social movements, you had theological movements, you had movements within movements, so you had ecclesiastical reformations within the church, and then within the nunneries and the monasteries, you had revolutions and reformations. Amongst the humanists, you had – it's very complicated yeah. and intricate, and there are numerous variables, as there is in all of life, and yet I think we are prone to try and reduce everything to just binary terms. Mm. That it's this and therefore it's that. Right. And it's it's reductive to the point of destructive thinking. Um, and yet we naturally do it because when we are confronted with something that is infinitely complex, or at least appears infinitely complex, we try and reduce it so we can get our, you know, again, we can understand it. We can control it. We can kind of categorize it and, and keep it, keep ourselves safe. Yeah, that's right. And for a person like Luther, who never wrote a systematic theology like Calvin, and for Luther, who was such a personality, and it comes out so much in his writings, I think that's the trouble, is that he's so difficult to pigeonhole and reduce to just a binary, one-dimensional person that we then say, well, I like 1518 Luther, or I like 1528 Luther, or I like 1538 Luther. And then we, we read Luther out from that. Yeah. Yeah, we're trying to 
to what brand him or um, you know set him into very small categories that we can define so that we can latch onto the one we want. Yeah, um, right. And use him for our purposes. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. And then he just ceases to be a real person. <laughs> Um, and he just becomes a figurehead, a tool. Yeah, yeah, a tool. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, did you did you see the video for the new Perfect Circle video? Uh, I think you sent it to me. Is that the one? We, is that the one in the trailer park? No, no, that's a different one altogether. No, it's um. Oh, now for the life of me, I can't remember it. It'll come to me in a second. Is it Indifference? What the heck is the name of it? Disillusioned. You know, drop your silicone obsession. And is one of the lines, the uh, the chorus. And it's extremely disturbing because it depicts a world in which everyone is lost in their own self. Uh, maybe it is disillusioned, hmm. but they're lost in their cell phones. Okay. And as a consequence, the entire world is seen in black and white in binary terms. And when someone has their cell phone taken away from in front of their face, the world all of a sudden becomes color. Uh-huh. And so she runs back in this building where all these people are at. And all of their cell phones are connected to these cords that are moving, the writhing, and then they all meet in a central position, a central place within this building. And there are these like prophets or priests with these digital faces gathered around these cords. Essentially, like there's an altar there, and all of these cords feed this altar of light, and then all of these priests worship around this altar. And she runs back in the building to pull away the phones from other people's faces. And for the most part, the people once they see everything in color, put the phone back in front of their face hmm. because they prefer that the world that they see through their, their devices than the, the world as it is. Yeah. And the, if you listen to the lyrics of the song and the way that they match up with the video, it's very, like I said, it's very, it's very disturbing and yet very sad in a tragic way at the same time. Right. Because it, it's a portrayal of reality for a lot right, of us. Exactly. Yeah that we're so lost in our smartphones and we're also lost in our devices that we're really incapable of seeing the world in its infinite complexity. And so we reduce everything to just black and white. Hmm. We claim that that's being together in a community, that that's being together with other people. And kind of the point of the video is that's not community at all. That's not being with people at all because in order to see someone in their complexity, in order to see someone as an actual human being you have to put down the phone and be with them like physically be present with them yeah eye contact (laughs) eye contact holding in the in the video she leaves this building goes outside there's a people group of people standing just holding hands and they pull the phone away from her to begin the whole thing and Uh, yeah it's yeah it's just it's disturbing to say the least, but yet beautiful, I think, in the in just the way in which the words and the the images are married together. Yeah, so we want to be reductionistic with people and say, you know, your value to me is this or that, right? Correct, mm. correct. Because it's just, it, it's so much simpler. <laughs> because if I can get a handle of you, if I can get my brain around you, I can control you and I can determine for myself who you are to me. Right. And it eliminates the need for me to engage you and ask you questions and give up give up my need to have you be what I need you to be for me. Right. And simply accept that this is who you are. And it might it might mean that you have to suffer with someone, um, even a even a conversation you don't want to have with them, right? Because of where they are, who they've you know, uh, who, correct. You know, 
<laughs> yeah, how they were raised or whatever. Well, and that's the thing. That's the twist, especially with people who are dead, like Martin Luther. Mm. It, he can't argue with me. He can't correct me and say, no, that's not what I meant. That's not my intent when I said that. That yeah. wasn't the goal of that piece. Yeah. You've misinterpreted it or you're hijacking it for your own agenda. That's extremely convenient. <laughs> and I think that's why, especially in the church, you see that we cling so tenaciously to history and our traditions and are so reluctant to, in the present tense, have a conversation. Yeah. You know, we're, we're looking at the um, divine service, for example, in Sunday morning Bible study. And one of the things that we're on the creed right now, we're talking about the Nicene Creed and why it's the communion creed. Yeah, it is disillusioned. I'm sorry, it is disillusioned. Right <laughs> I knew you'd get it eventually. <laughs> eventually, it's it's one of those things. Um, and I was explaining the, how long it took to draft the creed and how in spite of Constantine attempting to basically use this creed to force the church into a political situation and legislate our confession, it's a really good creed. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, obviously, and biblical and scriptural creed, and they really nail it. And so in spite of the meddling of this politician who was a really subpar theologian at best and who was attempting to use the popularity of Christianity amongst the middle class to control the population, to pacify the population, that we got this wondrous creed. And yet, then I also talked about my time at Luther Seminary in the late 90s and early 2000s when it became very popular to write your own creeds. And having that conversation with my own congregation and asking, is it good or bad to write your own creeds? Does it matter? Why do we say creeds that are over a thousand years old? Yeah. And why only these three? Not so that we can, of course, erase those creeds and replace them with, quote unquote, better creeds or our creeds. And that's what I mean by better, of course, it would be my creed or your creed. But rather, why are they still here? Yeah. Why are they relevant? Are they relevant? Are they vital to the church? Are they not vital? For example, I, I explained that the creed comes right before the sermon as a kind of resume for mm. the sermon. Okay. So that if I want to make the sermon about myself or about my children or about my personal pet project, my hobby horse, the congregation can come and say, Pastor, I noticed that a lot of that sermon was about you, but I noticed you're not in the creed. So why, were you, why are you preaching so much about yourself? Or mm. why are you preaching so much about your personal beliefs or your opinions on certain social issues? Likewise, right. it's there to protect the pastor from the congregation when the congregation says to the pastor, pastor, we want you to preach more about the Christian life, or we want you to preach more about us as Christians, or we want you to preach more about social issues. And I can say to my congregation, where are you in the creed? You get a clause, <laughs> the communion of the saints. And notice yeah. that's in the context of the third article and the work of the Holy Spirit. So the creed coming before the sermon not only lays out this resume for the sermon, but also protects the pastor from the congregation and the congregation from the pastor. Right. And what you or I would refer to, I think, as innovation, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That the pastor or the congregation says, hey, I had this idea. <laughs> Let's change this. And you as a pastor or them as a congregation can say, mm, maybe, but let's talk about it in relation to the creed. Right. And there's a way that the creed then functions in the same way as the catechism, right? Correct. Exactly. Yeah. That as the catechism is a summary of scripture, the creed is an even tighter summary of scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it sets, sets the parameters of the, the groundwork for what it means to be a Christian. Right. And the beauty of the creed is when you actually stop to, to study it in a catechetical way with adults you can really dig into the difficulties that exist within the creed, ling linguistically, grammatically, like the only begotten Son of God. 
begotten, not made, being a one substance with the Father. Yeah. We we just throw these things out off the cuff on Sunday mornings as if anybody understands what that means. And yet, as I was explaining, when I try and refine only begotten down to a, something that a, a 10-year-old can understand, it's virtually impossible. <laughs> I've looked at it in Greek. I've looked at it in Latin. I've looked at it in German and Spanish. I've looked at English dictionaries. There's really no good definition of begotten. Right that you can just use to teach kids what it means to be the only begotten son of God. And then jumping off of that, I, excuse me, use that as an opportunity to teach how easy it is to commit heresy. Yeah. Or at least make a heretical saying. Because Arius, for example, or the followers of Arius said, well, only begotten means he's not God, but he's as close to God as you can get. You have the adoptionist, Hmm. that Jesus was adopted as a son of God and that we can be adopted as sons and daughters of God. That all of these movements, these heretical movements, it's easy to stand back and go, heretics, yeah, so dumb. But if you really look at the language of the creed, one, it's a work of genius. <laughs> it's a work. It's obviously a miracle. It's a work of God. It's God inspired. But yet, also, how easy it is if we wander away from Scripture, for example, to make heretical sayings utter heretical sayings or just walk into just blatant heresy because as our friend uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt uh, once said in his Gal- in a Galatians uh, series that he was teaching, Lutherans are almost guilty of every heresy because yeah. Lutherans go where Jesus goes and then stop. All heresies go one step beyond the two natures of Christ and try and figure it out. Mm. And that's the beauty of the creed is that the creed summarizes the entire Bible for us and says, here's the line. Here's the line in relation to the Father. Here's the line in relation to the Son. Here's the line in relation to the Holy Spirit. Don't cross this line. Past right. this line, there lay dragons. It's like Jesus with the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You know, he pushes the, the God's commands as far as they'll go. Right. Uh, makes <laughs> makes everyone very uncomfortable to the point where he's accused of blasphemy, right? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, And that's an interesting point you raised, too, that circling back around to everything— we're so prone to constructing our own little L laws, traditions, rubrics, to satisfy our need, hmm. for our need to be fulfilled spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, whatever it may be. Right. So we construct these laws and then we say, that's the law, capital L, God's word of law, as the religious leaders did. Mm-hmm. And so then Jesus comes along and just shatters that illusion and says, you do follow the law, just not God's word of law. And here's why. Right. You follow the letter of the law, but you don't understand the spirit of the law, which is something that Luther accused the papists of doing repeatedly, is that you understand the letter of the law, but you don't understand the spirit of the law. And even within pastoral care, he would accuse other pastors of, of failing to understand the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And as a consequence, what you do is you you use the little L law, this construct, tradition, these rubrics, these traditions, as I said, and you use them as scaffolding to build this this fortress around yourself to protect yourself. And what this ends up doing then is it ends up cutting you off from anyone who doesn't agree to enter into your fortress of solitude (laughs) and abide by your rules, to fit in, to conform. And I mean, that's really the interesting thing about Superman versus Batman is that Superman leaves people to go to his fortress of solitude, to escape people, whereas Batman escapes his solitude to be with people. It's it's that Superman's alter ego, like Clark Kent is how Superman sees humanity. 
Yeah. That's his disguise, is that that's how he sees humanity as being bumbling and weak. Yeah. And Batman is the flip side of that in pretending to be billionaire playboy Bruce Wayne. Hmm. That they're both portraying a character, a false version of reality to protect their true self. Yeah. And yet the Superman goes one direction and seeks solitude to escape humanity, whereas Batman enters into the humanity and fights for humanity to escape his own solitude. Hmm. And yet both have parents named Martha. Go figure. Thank you. Uh, Speaking of heresy. <laughs> thank you, DC. Warner Brothers. Oh, heretical. Heretical. Hmm. That that movie was so painful to watch hmm. on so many levels. Hmm. You're, Zach, Zach Snyder's your friend. He is. Oh, don't just. Oh. You know, if you he is the perfect example of how mediocrity is rewarded in this society. I know. I really mean, is. Some people really like Watchmen, but I, I don't know. I was disappointed by it, too. I love the director's cut of Watchmen. Yeah, it's better. Uh, um, definitely. But only because I love Watchmen, the, the the graphic novel. Right. I think if I didn't know the graphic novel, if I wasn't, wasn't a fan of Alan Moore, then watching the movie would be tedious to the extreme. Hmm. But because I'm such a fan of the book and because he was so dogmatic in his interpretation of the, the graphic novel. That's true. I really appreciate it as a visual graphic novel. But yeah, I can totally see how people like my kids don't like it, and I wouldn't let them watch most of it anyways. But um, the parts that I would that I did allow them to watch, they were just really bored with it anyways because oh, it yeah. just it didn't move fast enough for them, yeah. and it didn't hit all those beats. It didn't tickle that itch that that DC and Marvel have kind of laid out now the tropes, especially in the director's cut. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyways, that's that's kind of the thing is to 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 recognize that. We prefer to reduce everything down to be reductionist in our thinking mm-hmm. and to reduce everything to binary terms. It's either this or that. And when you're distinguishing law and gospel, that's fine. And yet, in relation to other people, recognize that each of us is infinitely complex. Yeah. And that this is my trouble with medical science today is that it tries to treat us all, reduce us all to just men and women. Right. And so this works for all men. Therefore you get this medicine or I'm going to treat you this way versus recognizing that we, we know for a fact that genetically we're all different Mm. uh, or at least how our genetics manifest themselves. We're different. We have, even though we have the same DNA, so to speak, uh, how that plays itself out is different. And Annie and I were just talking about this in relation to our diets. And I'm not going to go into this because we did this in the last podcast, but that there are certain supplements that I take like magnesium. I can take as much magnesium as I want and it doesn't affect me negatively at all. Annie, one teaspoon of magnesium, otherwise it really messes her up. Yeah. What's the difference? We eat the same diet. We sleep the same hours. What's the difference? Well, there, she's her and I'm me and we're infinitely different in, in how our body breaks down and processes something like magnesium. And so something as simple as that biology, then just think about our brain and how our brain works. <laughs> right. And how infinitely complex, like we don't even understand, like up until very recently, we thought most of our brain was junk matter. That's right. The the Egyptians sucked out the brain during embalming because they thought it was just like ballast for your head. (laughs) They thought it served no purpose. Right. So this, this need or this kind of proclivity to reduce everything to binary terms, especially in relationships, I think is what ultimately ends up causing us to hurt one another and run over each other. And so be aware that when you're reading, you have presuppositions. And even if you don't want to check what they are, just be aware of the fact that you are for certain 
reading a text, even the Bible, in a way that is seeking to discover the hero's journey in the text, because that's what you want to find for yourself, is how can I be the hero of this story? And whether it's Jesus or Moses or Martin Luther, we use these people as props in our dramas. Yeah, we come to every text with a bias, right? Oh, 100%. Mm -hmm. And we come to each other with biases. Hmm. It doesn't matter, positive or negative. But just to admit, at at least for myself, and again, I'm just speaking for myself here, but at 46, I recognize that, well, I know enough to know that I don't know anything. (laughs) That I'm I'm just a dummy, really. I am. (laughs) And I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to be the best husband I can be and the best father I can be and the best pastor I can be and the best training partner I can be. And I don't know what that's going to look like from day to day, even minute to minute sometimes. And yet, as I think you said to me the other day, and I was just talking with Annie earlier about this, prepare for the best and, or hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Mm -hmm. Meaning I'm going to be a jerk to my wife at some point. It's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. Hmm. And there are variables like how much of a jerk am I going to be? Am I going to recognize in the moment that I'm being a jerk and repent of that? Am I going to plunge forward and dig myself a deeper hole? But Mm -hmm. yet, I also hope for the best in the sense of I prepare for that inevitability by trying to do things and put myself in situations in which I'm going to be a better person then. Yeah. In the sense of better in the sense of being present for my wife and recognizing my own failings as a husband and rather than make her carry the burden of my sin, recognize that, no, this is mine, and I'm trying to make you carry this for me. Yeah. And that you're not the cause of me being this way. This is just who I am. <laughs> and I'm sorry. I'll try and do better. It's like the individual confession absolution. Yeah, it's, it's right there. I want to do better. Well, it's also interesting because we have a way of kind of disqualifying ourselves from certain relationships because of some binary definition that we've applied to it, right? Right. And to the person. And so then we say, well, you know, I couldn't be friends with that person because X, Y, Z. And, and, but then we've also disqualified ourselves from any benefit the Lord might have for us in that relationship. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, I was, I I sent you that the other day, this, this um, quote that being angry is punishing yourself for another person's mistakes. Hmm. Allowing yourself to get angry is just punishing yourself for another person's mistakes. Or to you know more specifically to your point, like Jocko Willink says in his famous uh, monologue about good, is that he tells the story about when he was in the SEALs and, and he was in charge of this this group, this company. And the one guy that comes to him all the time and whether he, he had anything good or bad to report, Jocko's response was always good. And the the moral of this story that Jocko tells is that even our struggles and afflictions are good because they push us to adapt, to reset, to recalibrate, to repent in the theological sense, mm-hmm. and to ask the question, okay, now what am I going to do? Yeah. And that's good because what we, again, what we tend to do is when we look at ourselves in the rearview mirror, we judge ourselves in the present tense by a lesser version of ourself. We look backwards at a person that doesn't even exist anymore. And we judge ourselves in the present tense against, like I said, a lesser version of ourself, not recognizing that it's not just the good that's happened to us that has made us the person we are today, but all of the bad. If you're still alive, you're mm-hmm. still breathing, that's good. Yeah. You're good. Because there are a lot of people that would trade places with you in a second that are up in my cemetery right now. Yeah. And so as bad as it gets, it's still good 
because you're still alive, you're still breathing, and there's still right now to recalibrate, reset, repent, go a different direction, and recognize that your crosses are gifts also. Because in a theological sense, that's what's crucifying your old Adam self in order to allow the new man in Christ to rise and stand before him in righteousness, innocence, and blessedness day after day. And so I know it's easy to, to, to beat ourselves up because we're not the person that we want to be or we're not the person that other people want us to be for them in this, again, back and forth, this force meets resistance, violence, so that is a relationship. And yet the reason, at least for myself, I can say good is that I know who my God is and my God is good. There's only one who is good and that is God. And the reason that I know God is good is because Jesus is good for me. And that he has said of me, you are good. So that if I identify myself as sinner, as old Adam, he still says, no, when I made you, I said, good. Hmm. Regardless of your immorality or morality, your rightness or wrongness, whether you're the best of the best, you're the, you're the elite amongst the elite, you're uncommon amongst uncommon people, or you're just poor white trash, you're good because I said so. So ignore what you see in the mirror, ignore what other people show you about yourself when they put their finger in your face and listen to what I say to you. For Christ's sake, you're good. Yeah. May not look like it, may not feel like it, but you're good. And that's the beauty of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection, the power of Jesus' resurrection is he simply shows up and says, peace, shalom. Yeah. You're good. <laughs> and that that's what we look forward to. The hope of the resurrection is the is the hope of a Genesis 2 world. Yeah, that's right. Regenerated and renewed, where God can raise us from the dead and go, see, it's good. I told you, it's good. And we can say amen. And then we can experience true joy and gladness forever. Yeah. Well, I was doing some marriage counseling and the uh, both both the couples, um, both the parties of the couple, I guess. What did we say? Future husband and wife. Um, both of them, their parents were divorced. You know, And you say, well... You know, you could talk from a negative perspective about marriage. Like, here's all the risks and the and all the problems, and here's how people break marriage, and you know, and that that's helpful. But we really do need to talk about why it's good, because <laughs> it was given before the fall into sin, in particular. Well, and to that point, I mean, my wife was sexually molested by her father and uncle. I was physically abused by my dad and my grandpa and my uncles. There is like no reason whatsoever for us to have a successful marriage. Mm-hmm. There's, we were given no blueprint to, to have a healthy relationship in any way, shape, or form. You talk with counselors and they'll tell you if never, never build a relationship on trauma bonding. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. my wife and I didn't even know what that was when we met and were dating. And yeah, it was rough for a while. Yet here we are. Mm-hmm. And if you ask her or you ask me, what is it that makes your relationship what it is today, we would both say the difficulties we went through at the beginning of our marriage. Hmm. That we got married because we were in love with the idea of marriage, and we started off our marriage by simply saying, we'll do the opposite of what our parents did Hmm. in their marriage, Mm -hmm. and just ran headfirst into the opposite ditch, recognized that was a huge mistake, and then asked the question, well, what are we going to do? Because we have no blueprint here. We have no roadmap for a healthy relationship. And we were forced again, forced because we wanted the marriage to survive. We wanted it to work at a certain point after about three and a half or four years. We had to go outside of ourselves. We had to be curious. We had to ask questions. We had to talk with other people that we saw and went, how is it that you're so happy? Yeah. 
And everyone said, well, it's not that we're always happy, Hmm. but rather we're content with each other. And here's why. Or we're satisfied with the marriage. And here's why. And I think I've said before on this podcast is that you you grow up with this idea that marriage is ongoing tenderness punctuated by moments of hostility. (laughs) And then you get married and, and you realize the reality of it. Real life is marriage is ongoing hostility punctuated by moments of tenderness. Mm-hmm. It's how you live with each other and how you relate and engage each other in the midst of that hostility that will determine whether your marriage is good, for lack of a better term, or bad. Yeah. Whether you want to continue to, to ask this, yourself the question, after tw- we're married 20 years next month. After 20 years, I wake up, can I say this? Yeah, honestly, I can say honestly, every single day, especially now more than ever, I wake up every single day and ask myself, one of the first things I ask myself is, what am I going to do today to make myself a better husband for mm, Annie? Yeah. What am yeah. I going to do today to make my, myself a better father to my children, better pastor, like I said, so that I don't simply repeat this cycle of abuse and violence that was perpetrated against me? And I think maybe even on a deeper level, not live as a victim. Because right. we fall into that trap so easily that even though we, like, again, I'm not being abused by my dad or my grandpa or my uncles anymore, and he's not being sexually abused anymore, but it's so easy to, to maintain that victim mentality throughout your life right. versus recognizing, well, you escaped. The Lord led you out of slavery, literally, in actual fact, led you out of slavery in that Annie and I were the instruments of one another's rescue. We were mm-hmm. Moses to each other. And out of that, then, we can say we've entered into the promised land. We've escaped that. So why are we still looking over our shoulder at that like it's true or like it's real? It's not. Mm, yeah. we're, in, we're in the land of milk and honey as far as marriage goes. And as a consequence, you're not victims. And therefore, stop seeing yourself as victims. And I don't even really like referring to myself as a survivor anymore. I'm just me. I'm just Donovan. Um, and I don't like, because yeah. again, those are terms. Those are categories. And those categories allow me to put myself in a box. And I think the box itself is limiting then in the context of the relationship. Yeah. It's like, it's like as a Lutheran, you won't talk to other people that aren't Lutheran because they're not Christian enough to talk to. (laughs) Once you put yourself in that box, you ghettoize yourself. You're really cutting yourself off from a lot of really, really useful conversations. Yeah. Well, that's where I was leading with the statement before. Um, Yeah. It's like, well, and frankly, it's just boring. I mean, you can talk to yourself I think it only is. so much. <laughs> well, I point, mean, you and I not, can talk it, to ourselves for an awful long time. But yeah, I get no, you. That's true. Well, I mean, it's just not challenging, you know? Um, no, absolutely not. And that way, and that way it's, it, it, it's not stimulating uh, intellectually or emotionally or in, in, really in any way. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So I guess we should uh, start with the text now. Let's read the text. Mm-hmm. Luther, an experiment in biography by H.G. Hale. Page... What page is this? 107. We're going to start with satire. Satire. It's important that I I give you that chapter uh, heading because what comes next may shock and scandalize and even offend some of you that are listening. Shock and awe. Wasn't that uh, Colin Colin Powell or who was that? Schwarzkopf, right? Oh, Norman Schwarzkopf. Yeah. Storm and Norman. Yeah. Uh I'll just begin by talking about myself. No, I'm, I'm actually reading the book now. Sorry. Got it. I'll just begin by talking about myself and I'll make a little confession to, your ho- to you, Holy Fathers. It won't hurt you to absolve me of my sins. Not long ago, I awoke at midnight, for the devil had challenged me to a debate in my heart. Ah, he knows how to render many a night bitter and sleepless. <laughs> That's Luther. Yeah. <laughs> 
I was telling you this before the podcast, is that there's so much of Luther that's golden that's never been translated, mm. except in these biographies from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Like, I guess this was published in 80, but mm. really that generation of post-World War II uh, Luther scholars, they would go and they would mine these nuggets out of the primary sources and then publish them in their in their histories. And they're just, they're so good. I wish that more of this stuff was available to us. I think the only level of scholarship I've encountered that's at this level uh, mm-hmm. would be the uh, Luther insult generator. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Where someone took the time to find Luther insults in the English translations of Luther's works, presumably, mm-hmm. uh, and collate them, and then you can go on the internet and Luther will insult you. The social media version of good scholarship. <laughs> that's right. Actually, actually, I was going to say I think social media and good Lutheran or good scholarship are almost hmm. Hmm, mutually exclusive. I don't know. There it is. The Luther insult yeah. generator. That's me being sardonic. Thus, Luther begins that treatise on the very heart of the Christian faith, the Mass. Hmm. It is also a fine piece of satirical writing, which holds special interest for Luther biography. The early notes survive to show how the author's thought developed in the process of writing. This is also interesting, going back to what we started with. What Hale raises is that Luther will often change his mind while he's writing. Yeah. Go look at the Babylonian captivity of the church to see this. He begins the Babylonian captivity talking about how many sacraments there are. And by the end of the Babylonian captivity, he's actually argued himself out of the number of sacraments. <laughs> right. It's really remarkable. Like He's like, I'm willing to allow. And then by the end, he's like, actually, I'm not willing to allow that at all. Forget mm-hmm. what I said earlier. You're wrong. There's only three. <laughs> and so, again, you if you really want to get Luther, you have to go where he wants you to go. Right. You can't just pick him up and say, I'm going to read this, and that's good. I got it. Oh, look, Luther says there's seven sacraments. Right. Like, uh, read to the end. The early notes survive that show how his thoughts developed in the process of writing. The writer, the work, began as an objection to the priesthood. But before it was finished, it had become a statement against the private mass. As such, it eventually had a positive influence on the Roman church, which today disavows the private mass. Hmm. Luther regarded the priesthood, which he called an innovation by Pope Gregory I, as an intrusion on the direct relationship between God and man. So this is key, and I don't want to read too fast, because Mm-mm. this is a book that you might be able to find on Amazon. But uh, I I'm found quite... it, yes. Uh, oh, good. It's okay. another, just like our last book, uh, Princeton uh, On Demand Press owns the oh, rights to it. Yeah, so it's 64 bucks. Thank you, You can Princeton. get your copy. <laughs> Thank you, non-Lutherans, for publishing Lutheran stuff. Yeah, it's available print-on-demand through Amazon. Isn't it remarkable that non-Lutherans publish the best Lutheran stuff? Hmm. All that I shouldn't say that. The, the lost Lutheran stuff seems to be published by non-Lutherans. Right, yeah. On demand, that's great. Somebody could make... Hmm, I probably shouldn't say this. Somebody could actually probably make a living publishing old Lutheran stuff on demand for Lutherans. Hmm. You probably did just give somebody their... Uh, I know, I know. At least their weekend project. I don't, That's right. Yeah. But this is. A, but I don't want to pass over this. Luther regarded the priesthood, which he called an innovation by Pope Gregory I, as an intrusion on the direct relationship between God and man. Luther is not saying we shouldn't have pastoral ministry or the office of the ministry. What he's saying is that the Roman Catholic doctrine of the priesthood hmm. is an innovation. Yeah, that, that exclusive, uh, what do you want to say, theological vocation. Right. That, Like we talked about in relation to the, the Tentler podcast, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to confession absolution, 
only your priest can hear your confession, and ah, it must yeah. be the proper kind of confession so that you might demonstrate the proper contrition in order to be given the proper penance by the priest. But only the priest can declare you forgiven. Only the priest can give you what that penance might uh, take the shape of. Yeah, and only he can define then what is proper. Right. <laughs> and so Luther would say, no, this is an intrusion on the relation between God and man. He, Luther, had long objected to the priest's role, especially in administering Holy Communion, or as the Reformers preferred, reformers preferred to say, the Lord's Supper. Huh. Now, notice that those who took off from Luther, like Zwingli, for example, they took this, ran with it, and came out the other side saying, no, there should be no interference between God and man, therefore, the laity should, should commune each other. Ah, right. And that the pastor, and it, this is where maybe Zwingli might argue that Luther backslid into traditional Roman Catholic categories again. And this is why we need to correct him. Because Luther does float the priesthood of all believers. Mm, true. And yep. what Zwingli does is he takes that and says, since all baptized Christians are priests, all Christians can commune each other. All Christians can baptize each other. All Christians can preach the gospel and absolve each other. Which, generally speaking, is true. <laughs> but in a very specific sense, that's what the office of the Holy Ministry was instituted for. Yeah. So that God would establish this guy in this place, in this office, for the proclamation of Christ and him crucified for you and how it takes shape in the present tense through the gifts. Well, we had this argument, eh, argument's probably too strong of a word, but conversation um, in regards to the office of the ministry and holy baptism, because even our sure. hymnal provides the emergency and route. And small catechism. And small catechism, yeah. So emergency route or emergency baptism, and they're like, well, what constitutes an emergency? When when is right. it an emergency? And I said, uh, your child's dying, and they haven't been baptized, <laughs> right? You know, uh, and they, you know, you desire them to receive that gift, and they should, right? Uh, I said, well, why couldn't I just call my pastor? Yeah, you could. <laughs> um, if I'm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you think if you think the infant or the the person is going to live long enough for the pastor to get there, right? And you say, well. So, so which is going to be better for the conscience? It was kind of the question that ended up coming sure, up. Sure, sure. You know, I say, well, probably if it's done by the pastor, of course, you know, because he's the one who's been sent to give the gifts, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But is it not a baptism if grandma does it? Right. Yeah. We're not so strong. Right. We don't strongly uh, fall on that side. Right. Well, a good example is read, read the first book in the Hammer of God. Mm, right. And that whole, that whole uh, what do you want to say, that event with the visitation and the communion. Yeah. And and how a, a laywoman was forced to uh, preach the gospel because the pastor uh -huh. cocked, cocked it up. <laughs> he couldn't do it. Right. So that was the direction Luther's thoughts were taking as he began organizing them on paper in 1533. He speculated that since the ordination of priests is not a divine biblical institution, but a design by man then actually anyone not anointed must be more competent to perform the sacraments than someone sullied by the chrism. Wow. Again, referring to the Roman Catholic doctrine on ordination. <laughs> it's interesting to have such uh, a strong assessment. And again, this is from somebody who's just approaching it. Like in yeah, a, and 1533. So Luther's had a long time to consider right, this. Right, but I know, but I'm referring to the author of this text and that oh, sure. that he just comes out and says it. I mean, things yeah. that, that even Lutherans are uncomfortable saying, like, hmm, actually the Reformers said that we should call it the Lord's Supper and not Holy Communion, primarily. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, and maybe, actually, just speaking biographically, I think that may be the problem that I have <laughs> so often is that these are my primary texts. These are the texts that I was taught Lutheranism uh, through. Right, yeah. And so I came at I came at Lutheran the Lutheran Church through Luther first, and then through these Lutheran historians as a church historian is learning Lutheran history, mm. church history. These are these are how I cut my teeth. We're reading these biographies. Ah, uh, gotcha. And so things that other Lutherans aren't hypercritical about, I am, and things that other Lutherans are hypercritical about, I'm not. Yeah. And I think a lot of it may be texts, which again shows the complexity of be, just being a Lutheran. That what you cut your teeth on as a Lutheran has a direct influence on your confession, on your theology, how you see things like this. Yeah, even the statement about it being by human right, right? The, yeah. The ordination of priests and even, you know, their competency is is right. all human order. I mean, that's Augsburg 14. It, it, it was the confession of faith. Right, of course, because there's no pastors in heaven, thank God, <laughs> will be with our high priest. Hmm. And so this is what Luther's pointing out, is that it's it's an innovation, that it's not the ordination of priests is not divinely instituted. It's not biblical. There's uh, again, we don't wear gold breastplates. We hmm. don't bind the law to our hands and our forehead. I think. I think if I had like one of those, uh, one of the vests, you know, with all the stones in it. What do we call that? Yeah, yeah. Except oh. in, instead of instead of the twelve stones, we have like the infinity stones, right? That'd be awesome. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> It'd have to be seven stones though, so it was a good biblical number. It still work. I know. I know a lot of pastors who would delight in wearing rhinestones. <laughs> uh, and sequins. And sequins, <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Sparkly shoes. <laughs> sparkly shoes, that's right. There's no place like Rome. There's no place like Rome. <laughs> Ruby slippers, yes. Oh, Pleased by this paradox, Luther shifted from his usual Latin in order to growl, you cake consecrators, eat crud and cake. And he doesn't say crud, just so you know. <laughs> So he shifts from Latin into German while he's writing this and says, you cake consecrators, eat crud and cake. <sighs> Can you imagine if you wrote a theological essay for like Logia and you wrote, you cake consecrators, eat uh -huh. feces and cake? Hmm. Like one, it wouldn't get published. That's no. the beauty of Luther having his own printing press is he could write stuff like this and know it would be printed. <laughs> But just the the audacity to say these things shows the difference between 16th century Germany and 21st century America. Well, it's like talk, It's like talking to an ethnic, you know, ethnic person, immigrant, oh, and, and they the just dude's a savage man. When, <laughs> they're talking to you in English, and then they just and then if they have occasion to curse, they start doing it in their native tongue. You know, I do that to my kids in church. I do that in Spanish to my kids, so oh, that you? nobody else knows when I'm talking to them. If I really want to like <laughs> go after my kids, and that's the thing, they know when I start speaking Spanish, they're in trouble. <laughs> it doesn't even matter what you're saying. <laughs> no, I mean they all speak Spanish, so they know, but they. Know, as soon as they hear that first word, if they, if they hear niños, they're like, oh, we are in a lot of trouble when we get home. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It's because, yeah, it's just a stream of Spanish uh, vernacular, let's put it that way. So, <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> you cake consecrators. <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful. Mm. <laughs> Buoyed now by insolence, he wondered whether priests are so debased that consecration cannot occur under their hands at all, so that the bread and wine would not even be the body and blood of Christ. But he did not pursue the point. He Instead, he says, let them answer for that. Mm. That's so great. 
And we think that things are that are said on social media are, are callous. Yeah. Right. Like that's like peewee baseball compared to what Luther did. Yeah. But the point is, I mean, he's willing to just let it drop, right? Well, and also because he believes that the papacy is satanic. Mm. That he's not attacking a bunch of men. He's not attacking a system. He's not attacking their doctrine. What he's attacking is the devil who he believes is behind all of this. Yeah. And so this is a matter of the gospel. Right. So that, not because this is like what, almost 15 years after his death warrant. Yeah. 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 Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Figure 1521. Right. It's 1533. Okay. So, yeah. so 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more than a decade and he, that he's been living under. <laughs> and it's after the Peasants' Revolt. Mm, and it's true. after Augsburg. So, yeah, I mean, Augsburg really, if you think about it, really shuts the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. On, on any ecumenical dialogue after that. Yeah. At least with Rome. and uh, Right. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, Marburg around that time and other things too. And Luther is – and Luther in 1530-31 accepted the term Lutheran. Mm-mm. And said, I guess we own it now. I accept that. Mm. So a lot has happened since the bull of excommunication in 1521. Yeah. And so he's just kind of flipped his coattails up and pointed his butt towards Rome and said, here, this is what I'm offering you now. Yeah. And that's the problem with revolutions is that uh, they're very hard to direct. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. They just kind of, so. they just go where they go. Right. And, and in this I, case, God willing, it's it's according to the scriptures, right? <laughs> well, I think that's... As you pointed out, that's sideways sort of way. That's the, the what do you want to say, the wonder of the Reformation is that we got the Book of Concord at all. Yeah. yeah Considering how many personalities were in play, just read the end of the Small Called Articles mm. and read what Philip Melanchthon writes before he puts his signature down. Or read the signatories of the formula. They were at war with each other. Yeah. Behind the scenes. And yet they all signed it for the sake of unity. Yeah. Not, not just theologically, but... Uh... You know, right. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, actually. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, it is, is, it is a wonder to, to think that the Lutheran confessions came out of that. And yet that is what happens when you put charcoal under pressure. Mm. You get a diamond. Oh, I'm so happy with our diamond. There we go. Mm. That we, yeah. So uh, Hale continues, that was a typical debater's ploy. Although Luther did not himself doubt the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, he had come upon a useful question to raise as devil's advocate. Mm. Answering it would compel an adversary to affirm the purely spiritual quality of the priesthood. If it were spiritual, could it not be shared by any believer? In order to appreciate how diabolical he felt, he was being, he was being to impugn the validity of the sacrament we must remember that this was precisely the issue with the Anabaptists and the Zwinglians. Mm-hmm. Mm. So he's not denying the validity of the sacrament. He's not saying that the words of institution don't make the sacrament the sacrament. Rather, what he's doing is playing devil's advocate in order to debate them into a corner. Right. And we'll get to that in a second. Right. But the consequence of his ploy as I pointed out earlier, was, and again, I had not read this before I sent the pages to you, so apparently I retained this somewhere in the recesses of my brain. The Anabaptists and Zwinglians seized upon this writing and used it as an excuse to basically get rid of the priesthood at all. Well, and there's a corollary to our modern context. Um, oh, back in well, at least 10 years ago now, there's that one little quip from Luther in the large catechism referring mm-hmm. to... Um, the Turks or Islam. Yeah, right. And saying, well, even if we were to agree with Islam about this, 
right? Of course. And so then some 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 of our fellow Lutherans said, well, look, Luther's saying that that the Turks are monotheistic and that they do worship the same God. And and, right. and it's a rhetorical device by Luther. It's very clear. And, right. and yet it was latched onto and glommed onto and said, oh, yeah, there. See, Luther even agrees with us. Our own confessions agree with us that we should be able to pray with Muslims. Well, that's a good point. It's hard to grasp rhetoric when you've never actually studied rhetoric. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Right. It's like if you don't understand satire, you don't really get satire. Mm. No, that's an indictment against, I, I suppose, our seminary education or maybe just our level of education in general. Parochialism in general. Yeah, parochialism. We just don't study. We just don't have classical curriculum anymore. We don't have a classical education. So we don't study rhetoric and logic and oratory. Therefore, we can't recognize it. <laughs> right. It's not our fault, man. <laughs> we can't really utilize it either. No, we can't, unless we go and study it for ourselves or go and get another college education. Mm, it's probably the reason why this show's all over the map. <laughs> yeah, well, I have no excuse because I actually studied logic and rhetoric and oratory. So <laughs> uh. after the fact, when I was actually mature enough to appreciate it. But mm. but it wasn't, yeah. uh, uh, it wasn't as instrumental in your development as a child, right? No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, of course not. No. Mm-hmm. It, a, lot of, a lot of force. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of Nietzsche, so, a lot of Nietzsche in philosophy in my my youthful development. <laughs> That's right. Well, I just blame it on grunge music, but whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna break this rusty cage and run. There you go. So the the Zwinglians and the Anabaptists questioned the real presence of Christ in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. Luther opposed them more bitterly than he did even the Papists, mm. because they took his own words and tried to use them as a weapon against him. Yeah. In a later set of notes, Luther came back to his mischievous suggestion again. He confirmed the presence of Christ in the bread and wine, writing that even an unbelieving priest cannot harm what Christ himself instituted. But is he a priest at all, he asked. Mm -hmm. Since the papal church is wicked, does that not invalidate the priest's vocation? He worked out his problems on paper by means of questions and answers, beginning with Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Luther came to the question, what if I am created a priest under the rule of the Pope? Am I still a priest? I answer that I am. Because although I may be a servant of the Antichrist, I am still in the church. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> that, that'll that light your short hairs on fire. Arguably, you kind of have to hold this position. Otherwise, you're going to be one of these people that says that the church didn't exist from the apostolic era until the Reformation. Which is what the Anabaptists and the Zwinglians did. Yeah. To this day, the Reformed would argue this point. Whereas the Lutherans would argue, no, the, the absolution remained, mm-hmm. the words of the institution remained, and despite the abuses of the priests, mm-hmm. they remained. Yeah. And this is the thing that, again, distinguishes us as Lutherans from everybody else and makes us the weird kid in the corner of the cafeteria is, <laughs> yeah. we do hold to the efficacy of God's word. Yeah. God's word is the thing. And you can recognize when a Lutheran goes off the reservation because usually the first thing that he or she will reject is the efficacy of the word. Right. Yeah, that's actually how the church was preserved in the midst of great error, was through the preaching of the word. By unbelieving priests, by, um, you know, philandering, Mm -hmm. you know, church leaders, whatever. Yeah. Or, as Luther would argue, Gregory I essentially just creating the priesthood mm. in, in a very specifically non-biblical sense. Mm-hmm. So then how does the gospel survive when the priests who are handling it are servants of Antichrist? 
And the answer is because God's word goes out and he does not return to him empty-handed. The word of the Lord goes out and he does not return to him empty-handed. So it's connected to to even when the devil tries to use God's word um, against Mm -hmm. God, it still serves God's purpose. Exactly, to bring because about. the devil is a creature, not a deity. Hmm. And therefore, as a creature of the creator, he must do what God Almighty says. Yeah. So what? how does Luther say it? He's God's devil, right? Right, he's God's devil. And this is one of Luther's famous statements, that Jesus became sin to our sin, death to our death, and the devil to our devil. Hmm. And anytime I say that, someone will inevitably raise their hand and go, what did you just say? Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> That Jesus is the accuser to our accuser, mm. and that that is the power of Christ's resurrection. That when the devil points his finger at me, I can thank the devil for reminding me that I have such a gracious Savior, ah, and I, then preach, and then just throw the gospel in the devil's face. How does the the one uh, Holy Week hymn say it? Spoiled the spoiled the spoiler of his prey. I think is right. how it goes. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. Isn't that something? And so, yeah, if you – so on the on the one hand, the papacy rejects God's word. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the Zwinglians and Anabaptists reject God's word. And in the midst of this, Luther is trying to hold to God's word alone. Solus Christus, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide. That it's got to be God's word alone. And that everything must be brought to heal and answer for itself to that word. And if it can't, then it's not God-breathed. Right. And therefore, as he says, you can have a thousand years of priests serving Antichrist, and yet the gospel will be preserved Mm. because the word of the Lord must go out and it will not return empty-handed. So there are Christians even in the midst of Antichrists because still in the church. That's right. So you, and of course, Luther himself has to make this claim about himself, as he says. So you could, um, when when you're approaching things in the church that we would say are extra biblical. I mean, you can, yeah. you can be critical of them, you can evaluate mm-hmm. them, say, do they serve the word or not? Uh, right. And at times, maybe they do, and at times, they probably don't, too. Right. Right. Which is a matter of Christian freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you can make that decision, say, okay, at this time and place, it continues to serve God's word, it's beneficial mm-hmm. to, the, to the church, it's, we just have to be clear, this is not under any kind right. of biblical mandate or institution, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever that practice but, might be. Oh, how we try to reduce it to binary terms again. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Well, we want to say... I know it's not in the Word of God, but... <laughs> it's not Good Friday unless you put out seven candles or 12 candles right. or whatever. Well, like, it's like, the, you know, it's like uh, every uh, every romance movie TV show where <laughs> the guy asks the woman out and she's like, I wouldn't go out with you if you were the last man on earth. And he says, what? So you're saying there's still a chance. <laughs> it's not in God's Word. It's a matter of Christian freedom. So you're saying it's essentially God's Word, right? <laughs> like you're essentially saying the same thing. Yeah. Let's reduce it to the <laughs> yeah. last man standing. All right. There's, there's still a chance, right? Exactly, the last man standing. That even if we were the last person on the face of the earth and it was just me and Jesus, mm. I'd still figure out a way to say, so what you mean is mm. I, can, I have to have seven candles. We will take our freedom and exchange it for slavery in a heartbeat. <laughs> like, you're like, you're free. What do you want to do? I'm going to lock the door and throw away the key. That's what I'm going to do with my freedom because this is terrifying. Yeah. What if I only have three candles? Well, you can't have three candles, but it's a biblical number. <laughs> right. But that's the point here is that uh, the priesthood isn't biblically mm-hmm. mandated. It's not right. necessarily wrong. It might be right. helpful. Uh, but as soon as you say it's by divine right or it's, it, it's necessary, uh, right. that's where you get into challenges. 
Well, I think, as our beloved Dr. Nagel would say, the, the office of the ministry is a gift-giving office. Mm. And therefore, it is properly defined by the gifts in which it delivers for you. Yes. That is, does it deliver Christ for you? If it doesn't, mm, it might be the office of the ministry, but the person in the office isn't serving the office. He's serving mm-hmm. himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's defined by what it gives. So Luther tried various attacks and various defenses. It was a problem he knew well from St. Augustine, who had tackled it as the Donatist heresy more than a thousand years earlier. Mm-hmm. But in every case found that the church was a guarantor of the sacrament's integrity. Here's the key point then. To quote Luther, therefore, to sum up, you cannot avoid finally saying, I did not institute the sacrament. God did. There is no other logical conclusion. Now, that means, since it derives from God, it is correct. (laughs) The integrity of the Lord's Supper in this case does not come from, it does not spring from the church's integrity Mm. or the priest's integrity, Mm. but rather it springs from the word of God's integrity. Yeah. That is Christ. And therefore, it is correct even when handled by servants of Antichrist. Right. How might the devil's advocate attack that conclusion, he wondered. Hmm. A third set of notes, the lengthiest, finally took on the form of a little drama, a debate. Luther began by setting down the proposition, it is not a sacrament. Here, the rejoinder is possible. This is all Luther right now. Here, the rejoinder is possible. Oh, yes, it is, because the priest is called to this office and anointed by his bishop. Mm -hmm. Also, another answer would be he is acting in good faith. Here, one can argue, simple vocation is not enough. Among the Turks, too, they are called to their holy works. But that is different. I answer, even if both doer and deed differ, the fact remains that both are godless. (laughs) And the godlessness is greater among Christian priests because they are wickedly and godlessly defiling a divine institution, and the Turks aren't. Uh, the Turks are just play acting. Uh, right. That's funny. Woof. You want to talk about truth hammer? Holy cow. Yeah. The hammer of truth is falling hard in, this, in Luther here. Well, and the way that this plays out for us, even in a Lutheran context today, yeah. uh, is that some of us have shifted more towards... Um, the Zwinglians or the Anabaptists and saying mm-hmm. that the validity of the sacrament isn't dependent upon the priesthood, but it's mm-hmm. dependent upon us and our faith. Right, right. So it's, so it's the sacrament because I believe it is. Yes. Which I experienced in my own, in my own uh, uh, pastoral situations or whatever. Mm-hmm. I had somebody come to me and I said, look, um, you haven't been to church in years. Are, do you still want to be a member here? Do you want to receive the sacrament here? And he's like, well, I think I should be able to. I'm like, well, why? Right. Um this, you don't attend here. And it's like, well, I go to another church, but um, <laughs> I don't know. And they don't believe the same thing as we do as Lutherans, um, but they have, they, have the, they have the body and blood of Christ. And I said, do they? Because they actually publicly don't believe that. And he's like, hmm. well, but I believe they, they, that it is. There you go. Yep. And it doesn't matter what the guy up in the front says it is. That's what I believe it is. Right. Like, oh. Uh, well, in that same vein of thinking, You've had the same experience, too, when someone comes and says, Pastor, communion is between me and God. Ah, uh, yeah. And you can't tell me that I can't come to communion. Hmm. And it's like, well, what is my purpose? Well, you're just here to give it to me. Hmm. It's all, again, it's all tradition is all it is. It's just an old tradition. Hmm. And it doesn't really matter if you do it or the woman next to me in church does it. Because really, this is about my faith. And about, this is between me and God. Right. So it's always communion, but not in a vertical sense, in a, in a horizontal sense. Right. With right, one, exactly. one another. It's a social activity, almost, right? to be crass. And like you said, the only difference between Christians then and non-Christians is that non-Christians would just be play-acting. It would mm. be kabuki theater. 
versus we actually believe it's true. Well, it is true whether whether we believe it or not. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which is the saving grace. We just talked about this in confirmation last week when I asked, because this is, for some reason, kids have trouble with this when it begins. I think because they're kids and, and they worship adults to a ah. certain sense at that age. Yeah. I said, does, does, does the Lord's Supper depend on my faith hmm. as your pastor? And they said, well, yeah. And I said, really? Why? <laughs> I, I, exactly. I, I said, what if... I don't have as much faith as you think I do. What if I don't have 100% perfect faith? Do you really want to depend on your forgiveness and salvation on whether or not I believe 100% perfectly at that moment? Mm-hmm. You know, what if I believe 100% at the beginning of the line, but by the time I get to you, I'm starting to doubt? Yeah. You know, what if, what if I do have 100% perfect faith today, but next Sunday I don't? Like, do you, do you really want to put the next... 5, 10, 20, 30 years of your life on whether or not I've got the right kind of faith? Uh, yeah, the what if game. And finally That's... they're like, yeah, they're like, well, no. I go, exactly. And then I'll say, does it depend on your faith? And for, you know, because they're kids, they say yes. <laughs> and I and we go back to the third article. We talk about faith, where it comes from, how you get it, blah, blah, mm-hmm, blah. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, for some reason to say it's the word that does it all not our faith, and that even our faith is a work of the Spirit in us. It's not our faith. It's to say, faith is to say Jesus. Right. For kids to get, but once they get it, they get it. And I think in some sense, I really lament that fact that I've ruined so many children now for the future, because catechizing kids and really getting into the nitty gritty of this stuff like this prepares them not only to make a good confession, but also to recognize bad confessions. Yeah. And that worries me when they go away to college or they leave home that they're going to be able to judge a sermon, judge a hymn, walk into a church and judge it by its architecture or lack thereof, Mm -hmm. listen to the pastor's sermon and say, that's not a gospel sermon. Yeah. It does does set them up for disappointment. It really does. And and my wife and I talk about this all the time with our own children that have – and I'm not even trying. I'm not even trying to be proud about this. I'm being uh, sincerely humble. Have I set the bar way too high for my children? Of course you have. When it comes to this, of course you have. But of course I have because I'm an adult convert. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm horrified and terrified that my children will grow up and have to go through the things that I went through. Yeah, yeah. And it's not it's not even just that. Okay, so they're going to be disappointed, and then if God willing, um, they right. stay, um, then they're also going to be put in opposition to. Previous generations, previous pastors, yes. um, or current pastor, or current you know right. current leadership, um, and I've seen this firsthand too, where you have younger folks that are uh, faithful and they're zealous, uh, not in a bad way, but it's received mm-hmm. as like judgment against the older crowd, you know. Yes, and in a way, it is judgment, of course, um, but. So maybe that's the lack of humility that we generally have to when we have this mm-hmm. like perfect diamond called you know uh, the Lutheran yeah. Confessions or what what not. That we well, hold. and I raised the point on purpose too to actually play devil's advocate against myself because mm, okay. what we just read is really also what I'm playing out in relation to my own children is that I don't believe in the efficacy of the Word of God. Mm, yeah, when I worry about whether my children will be raised so focused, so laser-focused on the gospel and the gifts that when they go out for me, they won't find the gospel and the gifts. Which is, again, to say how much of my faith or what I call my faith is faith in the church. 
as institution, right? And faith in the ministry as the person preaching versus the word. Right. So that as you and I have both experienced, we've we've heard truly faith-destroying sermons. We've gone to congregations, we've gone to worship services where we walked out and went, I think I just lost 50 IQ points. <laughs> it's so true. And yet, what do we do on the way home in the car? We're just preaching the gospel like a wildfire. Mm-hmm. And God is forcing a good confession out of our own hard-heartedness. Mm-hmm. And yet, why not just recognize, wait a minute, I heard the words of institution. I received the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. I got the gospel today. Mm. So why am I so focused on the man in the pulpit? Why am I so focused on the architecture? Why am I so focused on what I didn't like or where the gospel wasn't? Why can't I just go, oh, wait, I got the gospel. Yeah. And we've talked about I, we've talked about uh, rhetoric and like the orders of discourse. And yeah. I mean, there's a way that um, if you've been catechized by, by a particular pastor, you've actually mm-hmm. learned how to listen to that pastor. Correct. Right, very particularly. And so they're going to be more evocative or more communicative to you sure. than another pastor just because right. you know how to listen yeah, good to point. them. Yeah. And uh, so this is always a challenge for me because I'm kind of soft spoken, mild mannered, uh, mm. boring. I don't know, whatever words you want to use. Um, and so people will say, well, Pastor, you need to be more dramatic, you know? For, and it's the same. It's the same criticism. If you're not more dramatic, then somehow that word's not as effective. Yeah, you know exactly. And I, I, well, I understand the sentiment. On on the flip side, it's like, well, some days I come to church, I don't have the energy level to mm-hmm. like give that 110 <laughs> percent emotionally mm-hmm. that you want me to give. Um, today I'm just not there. You know, right? Uh, you know, what I started doing actually is I started drinking electrolytes now through the service. So I'd bring like a liter of electrolytes that I start drinking right before Bible study starts and I drink it throughout the entire service. So I'm just jacked on electrolytes the entire morning because of that reason. I'm like, there's some Sundays I come and I'm, I'm usually obviously judging from my personality. I'm usually very intense. Yeah. Right. And so I'm really there dialed in, but there's some Sundays, especially in the wintertime where I'm just, you know, I want to mail it in. I really do. I'm on autopilot. Yeah. And so I discovered, yeah, I just I just drink a liter of, no, and, of water and, and, with electrolytes. Clearly, that's that's something that should indict you, right? Oh, hundred percent. I'm, I'm of not course. there. It does as pastor, as pastor. Yeah, right. Yeah. But it's not an indictment against the word. No, of course not. And its effectiveness. It's, you no, know? it's just it's again it's a point to say, see that giant glass up there next to the chair? That means I'm a sinner. <laughs> see the words coming out of my mouth. That's the gospel. Mm. God chooses broken vessels to mm-hmm. deliver the water of salvation to you. Mm. And the funny thing is, as much water as runs out of this this leaky vessel, the water never runs out altogether. Right. Sometimes it st- sometimes it slows to a drip. Other times it's a flood, but there's always water. Mm. But we get so caught up in reductive thinking. Maybe that's the theme of the, today's podcast. But we get we become so reductive that we reduce everything to the church as an institution is the vehicle of salvation or the gospel, Mm -hmm. or the priesthood is the vehicle of salvation, the gospel. And therefore, if the pastor makes a mess of things or the church makes a mess of things, God's word isn't effective anymore. It doesn't do what the scriptures tell us it does. Mm -hmm. But rather, no, in spite of your pastor, in spite of myself, in spite of the church, in spite of that monster that constantly seeks to devour and consume whatever it can get a hold of to feed itself and perpetuate itself, the gospel is alive. Yeah. It's still alive. Yeah. Despite. 
<laughs> despite. And that was one of Luther's favorite sayings, trots, in spite of despite. Mm-hmm. So Luther had made progress while writing. He was no longer treating the general issue of priesthood, but had drawn his bead on the priest's function at mass. He was testing his assumption that the sacrament itself, divinely ordained, must remain valid, however wicked the participants. Involved in a phantom debate, he had been drawn into the first person, I answer. As the exchange became hotter with himself, he, I'm sorry, I added the with himself part because I just realized he's having a debate with himself and the debate is heating up. <laughs> so he's actually getting himself excited as he's writing. So maybe, this. maybe, maybe the Luther movies are right where he's like arguing with the devil in his room, you know? Yes. And he's just getting so. really fired up. It's like, there's nobody yeah. in the room, dude. <laughs> <laughs> That you could see. (laughs) So as the exchange became hotter, he designated one side the argument of the devil, presenting it also in the first person. He had been touched by the dramatic muse. Sincerely, (laughs) there you go, Chris. There's your your problem. You have been touched by the dramatic muse. (laughs) Maybe we need to both start preaching sermons as dialogues. I don't know. Or maybe maybe some, some, some kind of psychotropic. Something rather. Yeah, that's right. There we go. Today's sermon is brought to you by mushrooms. I'm I'm sure I'm seeing who I'm talking to. Uh, exactly. He there. had been touched by the dramatic muse, sincerely articulating two opposing but logically coherent viewpoints. Mm. The words he finally set down to introduce the exchange were probably quite true. Quote, not long ago I awoke at midnight, for the devil had challenged me to a debate in my heart. Hmm. His finished pamphlet made the midnight debate famous throughout Germany and in Latin translation, all Europe. I wonder why. The devil preens himself as a polished academician and begins thus. Before we get into this little section and wrap this up, take a moment to really appreciate Luther wrote a dialogue where he's arguing with the devil about the priest and the mass. And it became a bestseller in Europe. That is something. <laughs> Isn't it? Because yeah. again, we always think of Luther in this very assertive attack, 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 attack style. Because that's the stuff that's primarily translated for us in the American editions. Mm-hmm. And yet Luther's most popular stuff were things like this, yeah. dialogues. Yeah, but because it, it was risky, you know, it was taboo. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you didn't challenge the church. You didn't challenge that institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you certainly didn't do it as a drama. Yeah, no satire. <laughs> That's the genius of Luther, though, because when you want to write for common people, for laity, mm. to put it in this context is brilliant. Because what do the laity, what are they familiar with? Passion plays. Oh, right? right. Look at the sale of indulgences. When the indulgence salesman shows up, what do they do? They set up a play. Yeah. And they have demons, and they have fire, and they have angels, and they have the virgin, and they have all of these characters playing out this drama before these illiterate peasants. And so Luther understands this. He grew up watching these things. And so what does he do? He just mimics it. He writes a screenplay. And the images that he conjures up in his writing in this debate between himself and the devil, he knows that the laity will be able to understand and grasp and just latch onto right away to understand the theological point. Speaking of Luther movies, wasn't that uh, what they did before the sale of indulgences? They had the whole, like, some kind of uh, dramatic play where the devil's attacking. Yeah, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. I didn't, wasn't clear enough. But yeah, that's what they would do. They would set up and put on a play, kind of like a big tent revival meeting mm-hmm. style. Yeah, get you all riled up. Yeah, to scare you to scare you into repentance. Hmm. Like, here's what hell looks like. Do you want to go to hell? Well, then you better buy an indulgence because that's where your family's going. Yeah. 
they're just they're in purgatory just waiting hmm. so here's the devil here we go so the devil preens himself as a polished academician and begins this way i submit my learned colleague that you will recall having conducted private masses for 15 years <laughs> and i ask you to suppose those masses to have been pure idolatry to suppose that you, far from revering Christ's body and blood, were in fact worshipping mere bread and wine, and teaching others to do the same. But I am an ordained priest, Luther replied. I received ordination and blessing from the bishop. These are all, all exclamation points. Besides, I act in sincere obedience to orders. How can you impugn my blessing? I spoke the word sincerely and performed the Mass with all possible devotion. You know that to be a fact." Yes, he said, that is true. But the Turks and the heathens in their churches also act in sincere obedience to orders. Let us suppose your ordination, anointment, and blessing were just as unchristian and false as the Turks. At this, I really broke out in a sweat. My heart fluttered and throbbed. That's so good. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> so, oh. Uh, that's awesome, <laughs> but it's, it's it's interesting because it it fits the um, oh the same style as the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis. Uh, that's what I was thinking about too. Exactly. Yeah, this whole like yeah, it's a made up dialogue, but but the dialogue allows you to then develop and and expose you know the the ideas that are behind it. Well, and how popular is the screw tape letters to this day? Yeah, absolutely. How many people can quote it in every denomination, in every walk of light, even non-Christians? I have non-Christian friends who have read the screw tape letters hmm. because it's such a great drama. Was it? I don't remember it for sure, but it wasn't written as a linear book, right? Mm-mm. Each of those chapters, they were presented they in were a magazine? Yeah. A magazine, I think so, yeah. Yeah. And then were read to the Inklings. They were read at the meetings right. of the Inklings. So it was, like, it was like a serial drama then. Right, exactly. Yeah, now we binge li- read it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> binge read. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, uh, Maybe that's the problem, too, is that we've lost this art form, hmm. the art of the, di- the dialogic drama. There hmm. we go. This, the, maybe what we've lost is our imagination. Yeah. Well, that, I think many would argue that, especially the classical educator. Who, sure, who, you know who talks about the great books. That's that's what. Well, and and, and especially so, in religious circles. Mm-hmm. So think of like Dante's Inferno or or something like that, where it's where it is right. another way of kind of communicating that. Well, you see this right with movies and TV and stuff mm-hmm. that Hollywood's run out of ideas. Yeah. Critics say, and therefore they just repristinate old ideas, remake things over and over and over again, and as a consequence people lose their imagination we keep going to see the movies we keep paying for them so therefore they keep making them Mm. and therefore imagination isn't rewarded uh my kids watch valerian the jean-luc basson movie oh yeah and uh loved it loved it and i haven't had a chance to see the whole thing yet but i enjoyed what i saw of it too and yet it got ravaged by critics it did and if you've seen the fifth element right he's got a vision yeah, he's got a he's got an imagination. Obviously, he's rel- and he's but he's relatively consistent in that too. I mean, he is. He runs and with that's the same what I appreciate about him is he's creative, mm-hmm. and right down to the way that that the ship enters hyperspace mm. is different than the usual tropes. And I appreciate that about him as a filmmaker and as a creative, that he he has a vision and he's consistent, like you said. And even when it fails miserably, box office wise. I think what happens after the fact is that folks like me who didn't go see it or my kids who right. wouldn't obviously go see it, 
they can discover that on Amazon Prime Video mm-hmm. and go, this is really good. Why did I not hear about this before? Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, well, it got really bad critical reviews and people didn't go see it. And my kids are stunned because, yeah, it's the same old narrative as any narrative. It's a love story in the end of the day, like The Fifth Element. But it's what's wrapped around that love story right. that makes it worth watching. Yeah. Well, it's like and, it's like every Terry Gilliam movie. <laughs> Oh, of course. <laughs> which I mean, which is just box office failure after box of office failure, and then cult classic. Well, and <laughs> there's another instance where if I mention a Terry Gilliam film, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen mm-hmm. or Time Bandits, that it, people who say I've never seen that, or worse yet, say I don't really like them, we're not going to be friends. We're just not. <laughs> it's just not possible. Now, I mean, you mentioned two that are much more popular or at least more accessible, popularly mm-hmm. speaking, uh, than something yeah. like Brazil. Oh, I own Brazil on Blu-ray and standard definition. I have it on Laserdisc, too. Yeah. It's genius. <laughs> it's just genius. But he flies at the end. This is Anne. Uh, sorry, I Anne. I don't think she listens Robert to the show. Robert De Niro <laughs> in the best, one of the best cameos in all of modern film history. Yeah. As an air duct repairman. <laughs> A renegade air duct repairman. But... No, that's the that when you when you're in Gilliam's universe, you're in a universe of his creating. Mm-hmm. And yes, it has to again tick off all the boxes because it's still a three part drama and so forth. It still follows the classical method, but or form. But yet, his vision is so clear and so consistent that you, for me, anyways, I can appreciate that even if the movie, like the even if the dialogue and the narrative isn't inspired, I can still appreciate that for art. Because the, the he has a vision and he's put it out there for me to and I can just appreciate the art of it more than anything else. And maybe, maybe the lack of creativity is exposed in the appeal for many of um, oh who am I thinking of um, director I just lost spaced it who focuses on dialogue. Hmm. Who's known for his dialogue? Ugh. Well, there's so many. I mean, Jim Jarmish. If you mm-hmm. want to go really obscure. Um, no, more popular uh, than that. I, I'm thinking uh, uh, it was the Western. Tarantino? Yeah, Tarantino. It was the Western, yeah. right? It was a 70 millimeter yeah. Western. It's a classic yeah. trope that hasn't been done recently. I mean, you had to get the mm-hmm. cameras out of storage, refurbish right. the lensing so that it works, so these cameras right. work, shoot the whole thing. Uh, not exactly a terribly innovative or dramatic storyline. No. <laughs> and all set in one room. It never switches. Yeah, once you get You're, there. Yeah, once you yeah. get there, it's done. That that's the only that's the it's only a one act play essentially is what it is. Or, I mean, sorry, it's a yeah, it's a it's a box. It's like a big box play. It's like we're all mm-hmm. here on the stage. Mm-hmm. We're not even going to change the sets or anything. It's just dialogue. Yeah, and and people again, I get panned. Um, yeah, because it was long and didn't seem to go anywhere. But it's like watching Waiting for Godot, except it's right. Except well, like we said in the last podcast, the purpose of the movie is the movie mm-hmm. itself. Absolutely. The purpose of the dialogue in the movie is the dialogue. And therefore, if you're waiting for a payoff at the end, it's a Tarantino film. You know what the payoff is at the end. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. Because everybody dies at the end of Tarantino movies. You don't go to Tarantino to watch to the end for the big aha moment. This isn't the usual suspects. Mm -mm. You watch it for the dialogue. Yeah. And therefore, you have fans of Tarantino and you don't. There's not a lot of people who are lukewarm on Quentin Tarantino films. No, no. In the same way of... Terry Gillum or Jim Jarmish or... Um, or Besson. Yeah, or Besson, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so if you can't appreciate the art for art's sake, uh, 
I sound like a snob now, don't I? Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't like jazz? That's because you don't understand it, sir. But if you really understood jazz, you would feel it. <laughs> Pretentious. No. Um, just a little. No, all I'm saying is that I can just, I can really appreciate imagination for what it is yeah. and go, man, that's, that is, yes, that is imagination at work. And thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. It's, it, it's that, it's that childlike sense of wonder. Yeah. Well, that's Luther world. here. That's Luther here. He's like, it's, yes. he's got a creative vision because he, yeah. he, he uses this technique often. Right. Yeah. This whole like right. di dialogue method. Because he's, it's not that he doesn't have the, do the doctrine straight. He does. He's trying to help you work through and tease right. through it uh, through this artificial kind of uh, Well, two things. One, the fact that he can play this way shows that he's a master of his material. Mm, true. Second of all, he is combi combating late medieval scholastic thinking. Scholasticism is the, the academy. Mm. Scholasticism is the way you do theology. Nobody understands scholasticism. Boring. Most of the scholastics didn't understand. Exactly. Like, <laughs> literally, paint drawing is more interesting than reading scholastic. I think we talked about that in the last episode too, didn't we? A little bit. Yeah. Um, but scholasticism to me is is a curse word. You might as well just spit. Um, again, that's my own personal preference. Those of you who are into scholasticism, again, we're not we're not going to take a road trip together. But God bless you. It, it's logically consistent, but it's reductionistic. Yes. Oh, so reductionistic. Yeah. And so on the one hand, he is combating a style of oratory, a style of logic, a style of rhetoric that does not really reach down to the, the street so that the laity can understand it. And it's in, and it's in Latin. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you have to know Latin in order to read it too. So you have to be educated. So again, many of the priests couldn't read it because they didn't read Latin. They had memorized the mass, but they couldn't read the Latin. Right. And then... Secondly, because Luther is a master of the scholastic method, he has learned the scholastic method, he understands that, he is now able to deconstruct it and break it down and reduce it in a positive sense so that he can give it to the person on the street in a way they can understand. Right. And so the scholastic theologian could come along and explain to the person on the street, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Luther can come along, present the same argument in dialogue form with the devil, the person will say, oh, that's what he was trying to say, I understand that. Yeah. Essentially, it's theology for dummies. Right. Right. Which is why probably I like Luther. <laughs> he breaks it down so that even I can understand it. Right. So you're talking about, I mean, Luther's appealing for this reason. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that the word wasn't effective when it was preached by a scholastic. No. 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 Again, the word of God is effective in and of itself because it's the word of God. I mean, maybe it just put you to sleep, but yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and maybe that just opens you up more easily to hear the gospel because you're not fighting it. <laughs> just sleep through the sermon and wake up for the uh, for the sanctus, right? That's right. And now the peace of the Lord, which surpasses. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> That'll work. Yeah. Uh, so to wrap this up then, or bring it to, almost to a conclusion, Luther describes the overwhelming power of the devil's logic, the incredible celerity of charge and countercharge. Good words. Hale uses good words. Mm. Again, the lack of imagination also is a lack of good, just rich and juicy words. Here you got good celerity and countercharge. Yeah. Compelled both by conscience and desire to defend the priesthood, he found no escape from the grueling debate. We can be sure we are getting the true account of a genuine midnight encounter, as well as an accurate example of how the academic arts were practiced at the University of Wittenberg. Which is another great point that... Rather than lecture as a scholastic or in the scholastic way, Luther does this from the lectern too. He teaches his students this way. Yeah. 
which is, an, I got to do this. This is an incredibly effective pedagogic method. Yeah, it's dynamic. It really is. Um, I do this in the in the sense that when I do this for kids, especially, I think I did this at, at Higher Things for a break or a plenary session once where I had the angry blogger that lives in my head <laughs> as the counterpoint to what I was saying. That's your muse. And so I would say something and I would step back and go, and then I would get on the, the stool and pretend I was typing on my computer as an angry blogger that was contradicting what Riley was saying. That might actually that. be your muse often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> well, let's but, see what the angry uh, bloggers say today. Oh, now I know what I'm going to write about. <laughs> I don't even have to go that far. As Luther says, I, I know the devil's argument before he even makes oh, it. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. I, I know the angry bloggers argument before it's written. And I don't read blogs. So no time for that. No time for that. No, I'm, I'm busy living real life. So. <laughs> Ooh, that was low, wasn't it? That was a was. that was a that was a kidney shot. I think I think the Lutheran insulter might have actually come up with that. <clears throat> That's what that was. I was looking at my smartphone at the Lutheran insulter. You are the devil's donkey against Hans Furst. There we go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I what I said about disillusion. The video is that the reason I love social media is just for myself, and I don't consider myself to be spiritually superior, morally better than anybody. I just found that it was a distraction from reality from my real relationships and from doing things that, again, like I say, bettered me as a person. I didn't feel bettered by being on social media. Mm. And that time, which was how many hours per week, is now filled with training. You know, jujitsu, $10, contribute now. Well, yeah, Um, you do need to put something in its place. Because it it is born, (laughs) the use of social media. Well, that's why I left, though, is that I found that that was not real. It didn't have real consequence in in a positive sense for me. Mm -hmm. And I needed a very real, physical, tangible, you know, interface with reality. Yeah. Well, it's it's an easy way to solve boredom. Yeah, it is, for sure. But it's not really Uh, a solution. It's self-perpetuating. It just creates more. And And like Jordan Peterson talks about is taking a taking time to assess your own value for example mm-hmm. and what he means is you know figure out what your time is worth if if you were paid to do the job that you love to do how much would you be paid per hour let's say fifty dollars an hour so let's say then that an hour of your time is worth fifty dollars mm-hmm. and you're on facebook for two hours that's a hundred dollars potentially that you're not making right and then go beyond that and say okay am i really doing what i love to do well, then why am I on social media when I'm doing what I love to do over here and I make money at that and I make a living doing that and it puts food on the table and this doesn't? Why am I still here? And then what if you're not doing what you love to do or you're not pursuing something that basically frees you up to be satisfied with the work that you're doing for people, you're, you're not pursuing that and therefore that's money that is not going into your pocket. Hmm. And therefore that's time, literally time wasted. You're robbing yourself of a living by being distracted by something that is not contributing to that. Yeah. And I think that plays out in Luther, right? Because we we talk about how much or how prolific he was, how much he wrote. Right. But when you read something like this, you realize, "Mm, actually, he's enjoying it. Mm -hmm. No, he's writing for the joy of it. Yeah. You know, not... In private, I'll say to people, especially younger pastors, my wife often has to tell me to stop working in regards to the pastoral ministry, because I actually genuinely love doing it. Mm. A lot of what I do pastorally, like Bible study prep or sermon prep, I don't really feel like it's work. Mm -mm. And so it's very easy for me to sit down with my laptop on the bed and Annie will turn on some show on Netflix and she'll be watching the show and I'll ask her to rewind because I miss something because I'll fall into 
my work. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like work. I just feel like I'm in, you know, it's, it's play. Like you said, it's just playing. And Annie has to remind me that I worked 12 hours or 14 hours. Right. That, and so therefore take the day off, but I don't feel like I worked. But again, she has to repo, you know, kind of reposition go. Yeah. Did you notice that you didn't interact with your kids for that time though? Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, point. So, good, so it's not just point. occupation versus vocation. It's actually vocation versus vocation. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Even our best intentions can be damnable sins. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's fascinating, though, that Luther taught this way, too. So, the devil feigns sympathy with the poor priest's lack of faith. He tells, sadly, how all the devils firmly believe the epistle of James, how Christ was born, died, and ascended into heaven. And now to quote Luther, but none of us takes comfort and hope in him as our own savior. We fear him as our austere judge. This and no other was your faith when you were ordained to perform mass. That is why all of you turned from Christ to Mary and the saints. You needed comfort and succor against Christ. (laughs) So good. That's the devil, obviously. Luther's notes had left the sacrament untainted, regardless of the wrongheadedness of the priest. But the devil knows no such compunctions. Christ instituted a sharing of the Lord's Supper, he charges and reproaches Luther with having ministered private masses. Quote, what kind of a priest were you, ordained as a servant unto yourself and not the church? Christ had no part in your kind of ordination, that's for sure. Christ's apostles were preachers, but there is no preaching at the private mass, he gloats. You just whisper to yourself, was that Christ's intention? Is that being a good priest? Hmm. What began as a clever literary device yields to an overwhelming diabolic presence. Yeah. So even the devil's accusations, they're not always wrong. (laughs) No, they're usually right. That's why they hurt. Right. Uh, (laughs) That's why they actually tempt us to sin. And and, then God's use of them is, yes, yeah, he burdens our conscience, but for the sake of forgiveness, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he... Well, think about it this way. In the absence of a preacher who will deliver law and gospel... The devil will suffice in regards to preaching the law to you. Mm-hmm. It's true. The problem is, is that mm, you might not get the gospel. Exactly the point. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah, the devil will convict you of sin. He can do that. He can be a Moses to you, but he's not going to come behind that and say, "Now come to the table. Now receive the body and blood for the forgiveness of all that sin." Instead, he'll just say, "Oh, you you can't go to the table. Yeah. I just explained why." Yeah. And as you just pointed out. 99%, I used to say 90%, but the older I get, the, the, the <laughs> higher that number gets. 99% of what the devil says to you is true. Yeah. The one thing that he says to you is not true is that Jesus can't forgive that. Mm. So that's, and that's, remember, that's again, the in late medieval, the the, yeah. exactly, that late medieval th- theology portrayed Jesus as what? The judge that sits on the rainbow bridge with a sword coming out of his mouth, swiping left and right in judgment. And that's the, the, the image that Luther puts in the devil's mouth. Is that Valhalla? No. <laughs> Valhalla. The <laughs> rainbow, you said Rainbow Bridge. I, I, got I did. A cosmic Viking invented by uh, <laughs> kids on LSD in the 60s. Oh, man. I, I, that was the best review. That was a counter review to the criticisms of Thor Ragnarok being too funny, too humorous. Is the guy goes, listen, people, it's a cosmic Viking invented by kids on LSD in the 60s. That's funny. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so Just relax. embrace it. Just embrace it. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's it's supposed to be more serious. Really? You do realize he's a cosmic Viking that comes to Earth on a rainbow bridge. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Just saying. Re- read the real mythology. <laughs> that ain't Thor. <laughs> oh, that's funny. 
But uh, no, I think that's the, it almost became the screw tape letters there at the end for us. Yeah. In what Luther was saying. Well, and I didn't realize that, that, that his writings had that, well, this sort of writing, this satirical writing had that kind of Mm -hmm. effect even in his own day. Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, I think for me anyways, it, it helps clear the perspective of why he was so popular. Ah, yeah. That the laity, the the common man on the street, wasn't a theologian in the sense of reading Luther's stuff and saying, oh, this is good. This is good. I need more of this. But rather, hearing these dialogues, whether it be read by the priest from the pulpit or whether it be in the church or on the steps of the church or, or read by someone yeah. that was literate, they're hearing this. And, and I, I guarantee you these things were acted out. Oh, yeah, that's what I was just thinking. I mean, it's already drama, so it's going to be dramatized. Which is sad for me because I'm so against chancel dramas. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately. I hate that stuff. Luther wasn't, but anyway. Right, but nonetheless, in in his day, it happened. Not in the chancel, but in in the proper place, let's put it that way. Um, And yet, yeah, Luther was such a brilliant and effective communicator and understood how to get his message to his intended audience so effectively Hmm. that not only could Germans understand it, but then it got translated into French and Spanish and Belgian and, and Italian and so forth. And people read it and went, yes, this is it. We get this. This is good. And that's what led to his popularity. Hmm. And, and again in 1533, so that even after the events of the, the, the peasants war, even after Augsburg, even after the death of his own children, he's still able to engage in satire in a way that was highly successful in communicating what he wanted to get across. Yeah. And he's not, maybe at first, well, as with all satire, it can come off coming being a little mean spirited. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, sure. But Especially not, to our modern ears, because we're so sensitive. Right. And that, that's not his intent. I mean, his intent is for repentance, confession of faith, you know. Right. Well, and it's satire. And therefore, it's intended to make you laugh. Mm, yeah. yeah. The fact that we read it so seriously, I think, again, shows the change that's happened in the last 500 plus years and how kind of dull we are to what true satire sounds like. Yeah. And therefore, we do not laugh at it, but rather, ooh, that's very serious. Mm. And maybe, and this is probably heresy for me to say it, maybe we need to lighten up a little bit. Mm. <laughs> and, I know I know. I was told that when I began, you know, the first couple of years of right? my ministry. And I was like, and I didn't understand it then. Of course. Sure. I thought sure. they meant, you know, just move a little bit more fluidly or something. I don't know. <laughs> Lighten up as in, you mean like breathe more? Like, like smile. Like no, some, they meant like smile once in a while. I know. Like do some yoga before I, before yeah, I like, Look, you, I got this beard. I, I, you're not going to see me if I smile anyway. That's right. This is smiling. This is frowning. Yeah. <laughs> you look the same. Exactly. So what I, what I now do to lighten up, as I say, after I tell a joke, I'm like, that was a joke. You know? Right. Which then is funny that Just I have to, to point yourself, out the joke. Not only does Riley have five kids, but he's a pastor. Just once you think of that, that'll make you laugh quickly. You're like, what? Wait. It's at least absurd. That's what exactly what I meant. It's the theater of the absurd. Mm-hmm. So, but what is the freedom of the gospel mm. Except the freedom to laugh, laugh yeah. at ourselves, first of all, yeah. because of the absurdity of our sin and how we just keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. But also just the joy of being able to breathe, yeah. to, to not have to carry judgment on our shoulders all the time. Yeah. I do, I do think that, it's a, a helpful uh, reminder to, to, to say, well, what, you know, what brings us joy in the church? Yes, and, yes. Um, and, and if we don't have joy, I mean, have we, 
are we just missing it? You know, do we just are we missing the the thing that should bring us joy, which of course should be the gospel, right? Well, the gospel would be the thing that inflames our imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Is that when should. you think of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, when we think of of Revelation twenty one and twenty two stuff, when we think of Genesis two stuff. That should inflame our imagination. That should set us on fire to really begin considering and thinking and imagining what it's going to be like. Yeah. But also, you know, especially with parables, recognizing sometimes the comedy of them, right? Right. Exactly. Right. This is And that's a great point, too, is that I don't think people appreciate the parables are satire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That he is satirizing the Jewish religious leader's approach to law and promise. Right. He's mocking them. And the fact that they want to murder him after he tells parables goes to that point of, well, we don't really understand what you're saying, but we're pretty positive it's about us. So much so that one of the last parables Jesus tells, he actually just goes, you Pharisees are this guy. <laughs> yeah, right. And the people at the table with me are this guy. Yep. Okay, are we clear now? Great. A Pharisee goes into the temple. Yeah. Here, and they're here like, are ears for you to hear. <laughs> It's like the kiosk at the mall. You are here. That's right. <laughs> like, they're so dull that Jesus, like, they're so blockheaded. Jesus has to say, this is about you now, okay? I know you were wondering before, but this is definitely about you. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, okay, all right, you got to die. Game on. Yeah. Which shows that you read someone like Zephaniah, for example, mm-hmm. and how Zephaniah mocks the the priests and the prophets and mocks the governance, that there is... In every execution, in every religious execution, there is a, a a whiff at least that you don't get to make fun of us because this is serious. And how many times have you and I encountered that mm. with some religious leader or some pastor who was overly serious who said, this is not funny, this is serious. And I'm going to point the finger at myself. I've done this way too many times. Yeah. Of, of you know, trying to explain something or trying to argue a point and going, hey, 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 hey. Don't you dare make a joke about this. This is serious. It's like, mm. no, it's it's really not, dude. This argument has happened in every generation ad infinitum since Cain argued with Abel in the field. Yeah. You're not original. You're not special. You're not going to win. Yeah. Been there, done that. <laughs> That's why we're still having the argument. Exactly. Been there, done that. So don't laugh necessarily at the person across the table from you. Laugh at yourself. Mm-hmm. And the seriousness by which you take all things gospel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or just the fact that you're so afraid of freedom that you're afraid to laugh. Yeah. You know? And and then, and then, like you said, have that conversation about the joy of the gospel and why we can't laugh and what happened to our imaginations. Mm. And where where did we turn left so that we lost that? Yeah. Because Luther certainly has it here. Exactly. In spades. Yeah. He's having a good time with it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That, let's stop there. There's It keeps going for the rest of the chapter. It's all brilliant stuff. But it's H.G. Hale, Luther, an experiment in biography. If you want to go check it out, go buy it. It's great biography, Link, like I said. Linked in the show notes. And if nothing else, he just uses really cool words. They're really juicy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Know. I was thinking about, what is it, Moore's Power Law? Do you know that? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's it's basically, a, it's not a bell curve. It's the <laughs> the number one the number one book, for example, on bestseller list gets mm. 10 times, sells 10 times as many copies as the number two. And then the number mm-hmm. two is is similar in function to, to that. It's a logarithmic, right? Yeah, right. Which means that half of all of the bestsellers um, are read by, or, you know, have a lot more exposure than all the, the second half of stuff. 
But it doesn't mean that any of those books sure. that that are at the uh, that are at the tail of the of the curve mm-hmm. are worthless. They just don't have the exposure for whatever reason. Exactly. And we kind of sit in that in that area, you know. Yeah. We like we like the stuff that's not not up there in the the height of popularity, but it's just you know it's in the tail. Um, mm-hmm. You know what we what do we say when we started this show is like the deep cuts, right? Yeah, deep cuts, Des- uh, sides, B sides, tracks, yeah, yeah, demos, EPs. <laughs> you know, maybe it should be an A list, but it's C list. You know. yeah, it gets lost in the you know it gets lost on the shelf of history. Yeah. It gets put up in the shelf in the library amongst all the others, and slowly but surely it gets moved from the main section down to the basement and from the basement into the archives, and then it's forgotten except for a handful of graduate students hmm. who discover this stuff. Yeah, and that's it. again one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to introduce you, the listeners, to stuff that you may have never even heard of. That at least even if you don't agree with the book, at least go read it. Yeah, right. And expose yourself to another perspective. Expose yourself to another voice who really respected and enjoyed Luther. Right. Yeah. And let's see. H.G. Hale, Ph.D., is a professor of German at the University of Illinois. He's a native of Texas and the author of four books on the Faust theme, including Artist in Chrysalis, a biographical study of Goethe in Italy. Which explains why he's so attuned to uh, rhetoric here. Yeah, there you go. Dang, man. Hmm. That was intimidating just reading that. Yeah. But no, that's the, actually, we can end on this too. It's a nice uh, segue. But the reason I, I went back to Spotify Prime or Spotify Premium is that Amazon Prime just kept suggesting the same things to me over and over again. And as you pointed out, it was always... It's always the top the most, end of the power curve, it's right? It's the top end of the power. And in the, regardless of what genre I was listening to, regardless of what what single I listened to or discovering music, it was always the same stuff. Yeah. And it was just that top tier being forced down my throat constantly. Safe. Safe music. Exactly. And what I appreciate personally about about um, Spotify Premium is I can go down a rabbit trail of related artists and it is endless. And I love obscure artists. I love independent bands that are so far off the radar, but they're putting music out there and they've got just a big enough audience to support themselves touring. Maybe. Maybe. And, or, yeah, or they just do it because they love making music and they have mm-hmm. regular jobs. Mm-hmm. But they're really talented. And because of the billions of, you know, play, albums out there, they get lost in the shuffle. And there's, for me, that's like going into a, any kind of um, store, like an old record shop or a used clothing store, something like that maybe an antique store and just digging, you know, yeah. and seeing if you can find a treasure. But it had to be a used, uh, a used record store. Cause if you went to, you know, a big box, you went in the mall, yeah. it's only going to be top label. I remember, I mean, just how much time I spent as a young person always flipping through those CDs, just hoping that today's yes. the day I'm going to, I'm going to find click, that click. disc that I can't find. And yeah. that, and then uh, what was it for me? It was before, it was before Amazon, Amazon bought them. Mm-hmm. Oh, CD baby. Yeah, and it was it was one of the that. first. Yeah, it's one of the first internet music retailers, and mm-hmm. they have all the imports. You could get right. They they would import anything for you. Oh, dude! And when you took that home, or you took that to your friend's place, you just felt like you were like you had just re- returned from King Solomon's mind. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I knew these. Like, I knew these just existed. I mean, there were indexes right. of them or whatever, but but I couldn't get it, and now I could get it. You know, it was always live from Japan. There was always the live, <laughs> you know, the live concert. Uh, CDs from Japan. That's right. That you couldn't get in the States. And yeah, I just, I think 
it it does it squashes your imagination and it it puts you in this little box this mm-hmm. little categorical box and you may not even like it at first but you're basically pummeled into submission mm. it's like when i go and train at the gym and uh, my instructor who owns the gym insists on having the local hard rock heavy metal station on which <laughs> neither is hard rock nor heavy metal right um and I know almost every song that comes on the radio now, even though I listen to none of these bands, mm-hmm. because they just play them over and over and over again while I'm training, and it just gets stuck in my subconscious. Right. And I can't escape it. But... Uh, yeah, so it is. Anyways, yeah, exactly. That's the way it is. So to to get out of that rut, yeah, go for those deep cuts. Spend mm-hmm. two or three hours in the store digging, digging, digging. Spend time in the library, you know, um, yeah, going through those books and opening them up and, and and letting your curiosity run wild. Yeah, we already said go to your church library because some some definitely yeah. out of print old stuff. Yeah, and you may find a tr- you may find a treasure in your church yeah. library. Yeah, it's possible. So this week, what are you listening to this week? Uh, what did I send you? Oh, do you know? Do you right. know Skirik? Do you know this guy? I do not. All right, I do so not. Uh, Seattle. What do you want to say? It's kind of a crossover jazz scene. So they're like jazz, punk, metal. Mm-hmm. He, he plays in all of that. He's a saxophone player, um, largely mm-hmm. tenor, but I think soprano too. Um, I I was introduced to him from Critters Buggin'. I don't know if you've hmm. heard of them. Uh, again, mm-hmm. Seattle, coming out of the grunge scene, but but uh, uh, they were they had a lead sax player. And I, as a saxophonist, wow. of course, I was interested in that. Right. Just like Morphine, band from Boston, right. Barry Sax, lead. Uh, generally, sometimes tenor. Anyway, um, Skarik, I mean, guy's guy's nuts. So Critters Buggin, he um, he would often play through like distortion pedals. Mm-hmm. So he'd run the mic hmm. through a distortion pedal, so that the yeah. sounds you, I mean, saxophone can already make a lot of pretty crazy right. screechy sounds, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you run it through distortion pedals, um, and then pair yourself up with bandmates that are really talented musicians. I, mm-hmm. uh, Critters Buggin had. Oh, what was the, the, he's a session drummer now. He played, he did like, uh, he, he, I want to say he played with, I can't remember now which artist. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a crazy band. So Skarik, you can look him up, S-K-E-R-I-K, listen to Critters Buggin', which was back in the 90s. And I don't even know what he's doing now. He does side projects all the time. One of those like super multi-talented guys. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Uh, for me, I've been listening to Micah P. Hinson and the Gospel of Progress. Mm-hmm. Listen to I that. love Micah. It's M-I-C-A-H, Hinson, H-I-N-S-O-N, and the Gospel of Progress. And that's actually the name of the album, too. Yeah. I don't um, know who exposed and, them to, at, exposed And him to he, me. again, he, he maintains the truism that if you just have a, a gospel choir behind you, even if it's four or five people, mm-hmm. it makes all your music better. Ah. So Mike uh, Micah does that in some of oh no, I'm sorry. Micah Pienz in the Gospel of Progress is one album. Howie Gelb or How Gelb uh, is the other one. And he sings with the choir. This is a live album. But yeah. it's H-O-W-E Gelb G-E-L-B, How Gelb. And it's called Snow Angel Like You and Snow Angel Winging It. Mm-hmm. And so it's both studio and live. <clears throat> it's a really solid album. It's just so good. And it has such an intimate sound to it that whoever recorded the live uh, version really nailed it. Because you do feel like you're sitting in the club, nice while he's performing. It's a really nice mix. Yeah. So Micah P. Hinson, the Gospel of Progress, How Gelb, Snow Angel Like You, and Snow Angel Winging It, and the Handsome Family, Singing Bones. I love the Handsome Family. Great stuff. Great harmonies. 
Let's see. Consisting of husband and wife, Brett and Rennie Sparks. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great harmonies, like I said, and really profound songwriting skills, really. I mean, their songs are really intense in some cases, really beautiful and other heartbreaking. They they know how to write a good song, for sure. Hmm. But like I said, it, it's being able to kind of go down those rabbit trails for me um, – and I, on the benefit is I get to introduce my kids to this stuff then. Right. And expand, expand their musical palette so they grow to hate all things pop music. <laughs> <laughs> or at least recognize that there's good pop music and then there's not good pop music. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, check those out. Television? All of them. You watch any TV? What am I watching? <laughs> Barely. I went back and started watching The Punisher again. Right. I abandoned Jessica Jones season two, episode 10. I couldn't take it anymore. I haven't tried um, it yet. It's gone so, it went so hard left, like really hard yeah, in your face. I kind of expected that though. Well, the first season was, was I thought they did a, that was subtle. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, it was in your face in parts, but it wasn't like really like just jamming it down your throat. Whereas season two is just hard in the paint. Yeah. There's a character from the first season, and the second season that, if a man had written those scenes, they would have been crucified for objectifying a woman. But because women wrote it, they get a pass. Yeah, it's empowering. Yeah. If two women write it, it's empowering. If two men wrote, would have written it, it would have been a sexual objectification of a woman. And what's unfortunate is that there's a character in the show in the second season from the first season who contributes nothing to the primary narrative, and in fact interacts with the main characters only maybe twice, three mm. times. And tangentially, like brief, briefly, like two minutes screen time with the main characters. And then there's this whole subplot that has nothing to do with the primary narrative. And that, more than anything, aggravates me to Is that the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe trying to just got to drop some stuff in there for another show or something? No, this is literally, it has nothing to do with the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the narrative of the show. Mm. It's, and I'm going to be really blunt here. It's essentially, we want to push... Uh, a particular feminist agenda and we're going to use this lesbian character to do it. Ah, gotcha. And she only exists for the sake of being a lesbian within the context of the show, in my opinion. And my wife backs me up on this too, though, from her perspective too, that this woman and her scenes, they don't serve any purpose within the narrative. And therefore it really yanks you out of the narrative and doesn't allow me to kind of skip over things that I may not have paid attention to. Right. Right. Politically speaking, ideologically, but it's so in your face and so drastic and crass that you're like, oh, what is the purpose of this scene? Yeah. How does this have to do with anything? Well, maybe later it'll play. Nope. Later it doesn't play back in at all. Ironically, ironically, um, the criticism of the writing of women by men Yes. Often has that same criticism, right? That, that exactly. It, that well, it's agenda or was, stereotypical or something like I that. I was talking with a young feminist yesterday and we were talking about this. And I said, listen, notice that the heterosexual characters in the show are essentially men being played by women because they're very aggressive. They're very in your face. They throw, you know, they're, they have guns, they have, you know, they have super strength. And the men around them are all helpless and need to be rescued constantly and are bumbling morons and, and can't function without them and mm-hmm. codependent. I said, if you're going to write a part for a woman, write it for a woman. Don't write a part that a man or woman could do regardless. That's not good character development. That's not good character creation. And again, it just it pulls me out of the narrative because I'm saying to myself, well, this is just a, a man's role, but a woman's playing the role. Right. 
but it's that lack of definition of masculine, feminine, and, and not right. being able to really clearly um, <laughs> yeah, expose what, what is natural right. know, to both. Well, it's, it's like, well, we have to be equal in everything, mm. even though we're not. Mm. And we don't understand what it means to complement one another. Mm. True. And that we are not equal, and yet we each possess gifts that make the other who we are. Yeah. And by writing these kind of androgynous characters, in, you know, in the sense of like the character creation is androgynous, it could be a man or a woman that fills this role. You're not only like um dehumanizing men you're dehumanizing the very people that you're trying to basically say this is a human being not a subhuman yeah it's like no you have gifts and you are separate but equal and what gives us unity is our is our differences hmm. and been, you're actually tra- trying to erase those things i've been watching uh, britannia it's on uh, amazon Prime. yeah we powered through that man yeah i did that is a phenomenal show you know it didn't click at first but but it's interesting mm-hmm. because it does do what you described i mean the women on the show partly because it's historic fiction yeah uh, the women on the show use kind of traditional women means to uh, yeah. to overpower Seduction, the men yeah exactly you know, you know using your weakness as actually a position of power right and they're very powerful women in the show but not because they're trying to put on the pants right <laughs> but but they they recognize what a, where they have um, yeah <laughs> where they have strength you know well you know where it clicked for us is that uh right about the third episode where i realized that this is historical fiction with mm-hmm. a hard emphasis on fiction yeah where i was like oh i get it the writers of this show just decided you know what Let's just go crazy with the mythology. Yeah, I know, especially just, with the druids. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Once I got into it, I was like, oh, this is more fantasy than history. Yeah, it's not Vikings. It's not Vikings. Like Vikings is hard on history, right? And then it mixes in fiction to make the narrative go forward. Whereas, yeah, Britannia is like, no, we're going to go hard in the paint on the fiction part of this, right? Well, especially because all the spiritual elements, right, and mm-hmm. the prophecy and all that stuff, and right? Exactly. The way it, it, you're not at the end yet. No, I think I'm okay. on episode four, maybe. Okay. Yeah. So. But yeah, and it's 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 a good yarn. It really makes you want to watch the next episode. Yeah, and I, if, you know, at first it's kind of low budget or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not super low budget. It's not like you're watching uh, Xenu Warrior Princess or something. No, no, it's solid. It's mm-hmm. solid for sure. It's just they have limited sets. Yeah, exactly. Uh, good acting, though. Yeah, really thought, good acting. Oh, that's why I was I was I was impressed by that. Surprised. Well, obviously it has uh, Ian McDermott in it, right? So mm-hmm. when you have the emperor on a show and then Zoe Wanamaker is good too. The uh, governor. Yep. Yep. And also started uh, Mavis Staples, a documentary, Mavis. Yes. On HBO. Yep. Which is, um, uh, speaking of gospel music and just how it makes everything better. Uh, mm-hmm. It's interesting because uh, the thing Mavis we mentioned Staples, earlier in the show, <laughs> she, she there's a, right towards the beginning of the, of the documentary, she they have a like a live concert, recent live concert. And she starts mm-hmm. it off saying, you know, I'm going to bring you joy. I'm going to bring you happiness tonight. Right. Um, you know, that's what we're here for. And it's like, yeah. yeah, you know, sad and upset is no way to go through life, man. <laughs> exactly. She got it. Let's it's just, true. let's sing. Let's sing. And it's especially gospel. Especially as Christians. Especially mm-hmm. as Christians. Yeah. What do, I just watched this old BBC, older, it's like 2011. It's a BBC show called... Oh, now I'm going to forget it. We powered through it because it's, again, it's a BBC show. So it's three, it's six episodes. So mm. it's three, two hour, you know, right. narratives. Right. And, um, oh man, I'll try to remember for the next show. It was really great though. The acting, I mean, it's a real, it's set in Scotland. So it's a real downer. Ah. But, but the, again, the acting and. Even more so than being in Wales? Even more actually. Yes. 
And speaking uh, of BBC, I actually started watching Borderlands too. It's on a Norwegian murder mystery. If you want to get deep, deep into uh, into like very gray, serious mm. uh, drama, mm. detective stuff, the Norwegians got that nailed down. But yeah, I started watching Borderlands on Netflix too. It's a really good show. Yeah, and uh, it's on my list. We'll get to it. Yeah, and then last night we we started watching Touching Evil again. It's an old BBC. I don't know. I'm just I'm in that mood. My wife and I thankfully kind of travel the same tangents when we get into like a groove of watching something. So yeah. we'll watch The Punisher. Uh, again because we powered through that the first time and so we're kind of you know slowing down to appreciate the narrative which Mm -hmm. by the way there's a cohesive narrative for you watch the punisher yeah that was that was uncharacteristic uh, it really was i totally i did not expect that at all yeah and doesn't follow the comic book very closely but i was okay with that because narratively it was strong Mm -hmm. the characters are so strong the whole ptsd veterans uh angle that they take to to basically recreate him as the punisher was mm-hmm. just so well handled yeah because um, it builds empathy right oh totally right exactly it's like you, he's a psychopath no doubt about it but you you can appreciate why he's a psychopath right and why other sub characters you know non-player characters as we say in the D world in the show you know why they end up the way they end up to and why they do that within the context of the show to really show the consequences of sending people into war zones like that. Right. And uh, which it's neither here nor there, but you know, over 64% of homeless people are veterans. I know. And uh, I think that's disgusting. I (laughs) I almost almost feel like they, they should have, you know, minimum guaranteed income post-war. Right. It's like you go and you do that. Uh, And like our friend Bonnie and Steve, um, Mm -hmm. they were deployed not once, not twice, but three times, four times, like just constant deployment being sent back over and over again and being asked to do so much. And then to come back and be told, okay, go home, you know, go fit back into society. And to know that six out of 10 people that you see on the street were our veterans and that our response to their service is, oh, too bad for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, to me that's just disgusting it yeah, really is morally so. there's nothing forgivable about that and i was even thinking about in the terms of like where i'm at what can i do as a pastor within the context of my own congregation to open up that outreach more or at least make it available you know what i'm saying yep because you talk about where you're at in chicago mm. those people you know those people uh, are all around you and yet how often do we walk by them or drive by them and think Ugh, what a waste of a life yep Versus, oh, no, they lived a life. <laughs> and then when they came home, we said, you're on your own now. Yeah. I had one that was squatting in my house in Fort Wayne. Um, mm. His his mother had uh, rented the place. He ended up living in mm. it with her. And then and then she got picked up, uh, was imprisoned. And so, and he was left in there not paying rent. And I'm like, hmm, I, yeah. I don't think I can kick you out. So, That's rough. Yeah. No, just covered it. Made sure the utilities got paid until he got into yeah. the VA hospital. So right. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good on you. Good on you. I'm not trying virtue signal or anything like that. It was just like uh, I figured it was better no. to have somebody in the house, but I also had sympathy well, for him. Right. Exactly. You know? it's, sometimes you do what's right just for the sake of doing what's right. Yeah. Without yeah. worrying about consequence. So, yeah. anywho, that's kind of a downer to end the show. On, but sorry, no, that's sorry, right. folks. But no, it's just something that's been on my mind a lot lately, and mm-hmm. my son and I have been talking about it. So. Yep. But anyways, thanks for listening. As always, uh, thanks for staying to the bitter end. And uh, come back next time for a brand new episode. Uh, buy Gillespie's Coffee. Yep. Go buy Christopher Gillespie's Coffee, Coffee by Gillespie. It's independently reviewed as being exceptionally good coffee. Yep. He has children to feed, so buy his coffee. Uh, go subscribe. Uh, leave positive reviews for us. Uh, leave feedback. If you want us to read something uh, or something you'd like us to go back and maybe read more of, 
Uh, we'll, we're happy to do that. Email us or text us. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Go listen to the Gospel Boldly podcast. Uh, we may have another podcast coming out for higher things uh, after Easter. Mm-hmm. We're looking at uh, getting a couple of pastors together to do a roundtable weekly. Yep. Uh, catechism stuff, of course. Uh, what else? So no, that's good. Go to go to the website. Click on that little button that supports us. Mm, yeah. you know, make a regular contribution so that we can do what we do and love to do There's for a link, you. Link in the show notes too, I believe. Yep. Yeah, but yeah, we just we, I do. I really appreciate you for listening. I appreciate all the f- the feedback that we get. Mm. I appreciate the positive reviews. It's really been amazing and remarkable to actually receive positive feedback and get good you know feedback on the show. Yeah. And have people actually ask us to talk about certain things mm-hmm. and, and read certain authors. It's been good to get that. And they listen and, all the uh, way to the end, too. And they listen to the end, I know. Wow. So there are some people out there who also enjoy the conversation for the sake of conversation. There you go. So we appreciate that. But uh, come back, like I said, and we'll do something uh, brand new, maybe another deep cut from the library. Otherwise, uh, I hope we pass the audition. See ya. like what you're listening to higher things podcasts are free for you but they aren't free to produce please consider supporting the higher things podcasts as lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant. And delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee new how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. (laughs) Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant and delicious.